and don't yell. Maybe. Nick, can you hear me? Yeah. Is it is it better now? Yeah, better. it's better now. Oh, so it I'm makes gonna, so much sense. I didn't realize my fucking actual mic was set up, and it's like five feet away. I'm gonna welcome uh, you, Elijah, and all of our listeners to the uh, Bladeology podcast. Today we're doing the uh, NCC Knives Nick Chuprin interview. He's uh, a friend and uh, co-conspirator on this podcast. We've got a multitude of questions for him from uh, our own annals of history and uh, from the community. And uh, I think we're going to dive right into it tonight. Elijah, do you have a question for Nick? Uh, yeah, I would like to know, uh, Nick, how did you get started uh, in, in knife making? How old were you? What year was it? Uh, take us through the, uh, the landscape. So uh, back in, uh, I guess, 2009... Um, I heard about the New York Knife Show. Went over there, checked it out. Uh, I was like 13 years old. Pretty much walked in there, did one lap around, and my brother wanted to go home. And that's what got me started. For about the next year, I was kind of doing research and deciding, do I get a Sabenza? Do I get a Strider? Because back then, all that really mattered was who's better, Sabenza, Strider, or Hinderer. And they all had their own little fan, their own little fan groups. Then I went back to the show the next year, and I ended up getting one of each at that point. And that's why I got into customs. And for about two years, I was collecting and decided to become a maker because no one made um, compound tantos. So what I made you, well, the majority of my designs are compound tanto ground folders. The only ones that really made them back then um, was John Barker. Those are pretty much impossible to get. And kind of once in a while, the maker would make a one-off. Like I had a Les Voorhees back then. I still have it, uh, but it was a one-off he made. He doesn't really grind that way and make that design. And I always wanted a Bob Lum, but they're completely out of my price range and really hard to get. The Lum Tanto. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites. Yeah, it's still one of my grails. At some point, I'll get one, but uh, but they're like I've only seen one, maybe two, and not. But I think I just only I've only seen one in person. Pretty rare. Yep, and that's what just got me. Yeah, it's what got me into it. I just started doing it as a hobby. I was like, my goal is to figure out how to do this grind and. I ground about 50 knives and never finished the one because I was like, I'm, I want to figure out this grind. Eventually, wow. I figured it out and I went right into folders. The moment I figured out that grind, I just jumped into folders. And you're um, all self-taught, right? Yeah, that's that's impressive. Back then, it was self-taught. I lived I live in Brooklyn, New York, so there's not really shop space. I was just given a four by four table, and that was my shop. Everything that fit on a piece of four by four plywood on top of a kitchen cabinet. That was the shop until Hurricane Sandy hit. Then I lost that shop. And it was still a hobbyist. Even at that point, I had a shop for about a year. And just because I just kept practicing grinding, I made about 100 fixed blades that never got done. Just if the grind wasn't right, just kept throwing it aside. And I made maybe one folder. Then the shop was destroyed. And I really decided, do I want to put money back into a shop or what? And at that point, I just decided, okay, let's go figure this out. Let's go take a break from school. And I ended up moving to Jersey and rented out space at New Jersey Steel Baron. And that's when I went full-time. I was like, I guess just go from nothing to figure this out full-time. And it just took off, thankfully. Started making folders full-time now four years. And still making them now, so it's working. The flagship model is MK1. That's why it's called MK1. Been making it to this day, and for some reason, I just it keeps happening. Like every time I try to make a new design, 
my water jetter makes me the wrong handles or something, and it just keeps bringing me back to this MK1. I've been trying to retire it for almost two years now, but it keeps calling back into the to the production line. I guess it's the just it's, model. it's haunting you. That's 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 the model that that's the signature one. So just just out of curiosity, when you said yeah, you and your brother went to Nick's, like. Do you remember like the the impetus for you going to it like a knife show? Like I I can't think of like being not a knife person and just being like, hey, like what's this weird knife show thing? Like, did you see a, like a flyer or something, or like was it just like you heard uh, I think about Jafco it? told me about it. I, it wasn't the first chance of knives. Lester uh, how I actually got into knives is stupid. Being I was thirteen years old and something funny happened and a knife was involved at a McDonald's. I thought it was great, and what I thought was a Spyderco was not a Spyderco, and I ended up buying a Spyderco Tenacious because thinking it was the same knife, and it wasn't. And then I got into like YouTube videos. I think I saw Gafco's and Tough Knives videos back then. And then I met Gafco at a get together, and he told me about the show. And I went with my brother, and my brother didn't want anything to do with it, so we kind of went in and out. I just got to see everything really quick within an hour, and then we left. And hmm. that that that's where the spiral the downhill spiral started pretty much. It's just interesting to like, it's, it's definitely the community, even though sometimes we're unaware of it is so much larger and more ingrained into like the, the outer spectrum than, than we think it is. Cause I mean, like you were uh, uh, originally, you know, introduced through Gavco or, or through whoever in the community and then figured out about, about Nick's. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, question. How do I sound? Cause for some reason on this, the soundboard here it's showing like one or two bars out of ten you sound great no, i sound great okay so it's bugging me out here yeah yeah so uh nick were you a, a collector at all like a hardcore collector of uh folders like tactical oh, folders yeah. before you started making knives or? oh yeah i've been hustling from different businesses and as long as i can remember i think my first business i was like 10 years old and i was doing mod, mod work on Xboxes and Playstations, changing out lights and soldering and all sorts of things. So when I was young, I had a good amount of money to get into the hobby. Like the first big investment that I had into a knife was, um, I think it was that Les Voorhees. Um, yeah, I think it was that Les Voorhees. It was about 750 bucks. I was like 14 years old. And after that, it was just down. It all went downhill. Before that, I had, like I said, I had the Strider, the Sabenza, and the Ender. And I think my second New York Knife show, I got lucky and won three Henders. Oh. And, yeah, and back then, if you remember, the guys have been there for a while, $380 Hinder was about $1,000 on the secondary. Uh, that was the bee's knees mm-hmm. back then. Yep. Yeah, so I went, I went from about a thousand bucks to three thousand bucks, and that, that's how I, re, that's how I built that first shop. That's what got me into knife making. It mm. was three grand, and I bought me a compressor, a grinder, a drill press, hand tools, and a manual mill, and a sandblast cabinet. But uh, I got those three knives, and I was like, okay, cool. Let's go. I know I could make something on them. I didn't realize how much because that's it for the guys that have been at the New York show or the Blade show or whatever. You guys saw their lotteries and their lotteries were, were pretty out of hand back in the day. A couple mm-hmm. hundred yep. guys just standing around trying to get those 25 knives that he brought because he didn't sell them to the public back then. Now, at your first uh, Nick show, did you was there anybody you were there to to see that you were excited to see other, you know, obviously other than Hinderer and Strider, was there anybody else like on your radar or was it, you went to, to go check that out? Not that first show. I was like, so I was 13, I was in and out and I wasn't too, I, I didn't really know much about the customs. Hmm. Like my goal then was like every the average Joe gets into it. Like my goal was, I want to own one of every Spider Co. And back then there was like 12 Spider Co. Yeah. There were a lot less of them. 
Yeah. It was kind yeah, of like every. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a little different. So like you want to get the three sizes: the tenacious, the ambitious, the resilience, the pair of two, endura, delica, and then there was like maybe two or three more. So there wasn't many options. Like I want to get one of each, and then I went to the show, and that's why I realized there's a whole handmade thing, and that's where the whole hobby changed for me because I was really into working with my hands. I used to do a little bit of woodworking because of my father and just I, I just wanted to work with my hands. And that was the thing, too. And when I was going to school, I was like, I want to go for engineering because I thought I was going to be able to work out in the field. And once I actually got into school for engineering and realized that it's more of a desk job. And that's what made me drop out and was just trying knife making for a couple of years. Uh, but yeah, well, like, like you asked if I collected, I collected pretty hard from, I guess, from 14 to about 17. Mm-hmm. And when I was 17, when I went full time, the first year of college, and when I went full time, I sold off everything but about two of my. I, I always, I, at all times, like I rotated between six and seven customs. Anything more than six, I would have to sell one because my Pelican case was six. So whenever mm-hmm. I got a seventh or eighth, I had to sell one or two. So that was kind of my rule. So that way, I'm always not getting out of hand with it. That's a good uh, governor to have a an only a six carry case. It's like I can yeah. only. By six knives, and my rule back then too was six knives, and then if I was only able to keep it if it was less than a thousand dollars. Yeah, if anything I bought over a thousand dollars, I would always get a buyers or more, so then I would always sell it. Mm-hmm. So when you first started, you were with a manual mill. How long did you work with that until you uh, switched over to CNC? Oh, about five years. Okay, I had, so man- you- I had a manual mill since so I was like, they said fourteen. Years. Yeah, so 14. Uh, yeah, right after the New York Custom Life shows when I built that first shop, I was 14 and I got a manual mill. I was 18. So, yeah, about four years, I guess. I, had, uh, I went through about three different manual mills, getting a big one each time. And then when I was 18, right before I left the New Jersey shop, is when I got the Haas. So, oh, yes, there were Grizzly, right? Grizzly manual. Uh, first, yeah, I, I, was the, just I had the that. Harbor Freight one for like 500 bucks. It was a little red machine. Yeah. Then I had a Grizzly GO704. It was a little bigger. And then once I moved to Jersey, we ended up combining our money together and buying a, a slightly bigger mill, which is probably the biggest mill you could get before Bridgeport. It was like a, a Precision Matthews. Yeah, they make a good one. Numbers. Yeah, but yeah. It, a couple of manufacturers make it, but it's almost, it's pretty much the, it's an X3 size. So there's like X1, X2, X3. Mm-hmm. It was the biggest manual mill before you start talking about floor units. Yeah, like a standard uh, table. So yeah, just in, just in case, um, for, for people out there, obviously CNC is uh, computer controlled, but a manual mill. Uh, Nick, can you give us just a, a quick breakdown of exactly what differentiates, obviously, a manual mill from a computer controlled mill? Essentially, it's it's pretty much looks like a drill press, except the drill press is designed for only downwards pressure. A manual mill is designed for downward side load and whatever way. So it looks like a drill press head, uh, except there's a table that moves in the X and Y axes, and the head also moves in the Z. So the head moves up and down with a crank, and the table moves to left, right, back and forth, also with a crank. So you're usually walking in one direction and not doing circles or moving at angles, or else you have to spin both handles together, and that just can't, accurately can't do that. And that's the nice thing about CNC. You're not really limited by an axis. You could, it could do circles, arcs, whatever it wants to do, as long as you program it right. Manual mill is kind of, you just kind of move in one direction, and 
it's all about the fixtures and the setups. And I just had a knack for seeing a, fi- a fiction and a setup. A lot of guys back in they knew when I was making knives, I was doing a lot of interesting milling because I had a lot of jigs and setups. And even to this day now, with the CNC, I still get pretty intricate with the fixturing, but it's not as important because the, the head moves whichever way. But like for my grinders and other tools I have in my shop, everything's kind of custom built and set up for dedicated tasks. Hmm. Okay, so it's a manual mill is still a three-axis mill. Oh, yeah, but you could add, like, you get... Just axes doesn't really mean much, but how manual milk sits, it's three axes, but you could okay. add a rotary table sideways, now that's a fourth axis or whatever it is. It's just another degree of motion. Gotcha. So I take it you're not uh, much of a a grinder fan, because it seems like a lot of knife makers I talk to, they're like, they're all about the grinder. But you seem like you're more about the mill and the fixturing and more so of pre-planned manufacturing what's well, not necessarily about that the the grinder um i've always had one grinder the uber grinder and i always said if you have if you have little knowledge of building machinery and modifying machinery you buy one of those nicer three thousand dollar grinders that do it all and yeah. i didn't have the space so i also bought that one because it did it all and now that i have the space i'm actually i just bought two new grinders that are basic and I had to buy another two. Um, and these grinders are supposed to be three grand. They're about 600 bucks. But like I said, I build a lot of my custom work rests and setups and jigs and fixtures, even for the grinders. So like you have the space. I'd rather have four $600 grinders for the same price as a $3,000 grinder and have each one for a dedicated task instead of spending half my day flipping the grinder, setting it up with wheels or flat platins or work rests where I could just walk up to that grinder and it's set up just for, let's say, grinding my bevels or just for sharpening yeah wheels horizontal versus vertical yeah yep that makes sense that's that's jumping ahead a a little bit but yeah i was gonna we were gonna ask about process um and like building a knife and like where to start from but you know let's let's sort of get into that so you're you're talking about dedicated grinders doing specific tasks opposed to a single grinder doing all your tasks so take us through take us through some of your process and in the whole you design a knife and you... Uh, um, so essentially, most of my designs, as odd as it seems, have actually started on bar napkins. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good way to start. Yeah, I like that. I that's, can relate, for sure. All, all, all good things start there, okay? Yeah, I, I also, I'll see that three out of five of my folder designs to start on the bar napkin. I'll just be at a bar, some friends are just sitting bullshitting, and I'll just start sketching with the pen in my pocket or a notebook or whatever and take that back and start going from there. I'll usually... I'm drawing I'll just do the profile but then it goes into 2D CAD and then you start building out the mechanism and at this point I have a couple folder designs a couple working mechanisms and now when I design something new I'll just pull out the mechanism being the lock faces on the the lock faces the stop in tracks and the and the, the pivot point and I'll design out from there usually from the pivot point to the blade and then from the pivot point to then the handle and then once I have that, I'll design the middle portion where the handle meets the blade. Hmm. So when you okay, so that's interesting. So when you design, when you design like your like your pod or your MK1 or your MK1L, are you designing uh, handle for blade or are you designing blade for handle? Like for usability, like an EDC, are you trying to maximize the amount of blade you can fit into a handle, or do you think about it being a user? and just sort of going for it for the design with with no limitations 
I usually design as an all-around knife. So I design it because it's a custom to be fancy, to look good, to be a user. I don't really make just fantasy knives just for the looks or just the overbuilt stuff for purely collecting reasons. Because uh, like I am, I'm in this full time. So let's say I'm in it 40 years, 50 years. I feel like if you're making the fantasy knife for knife just to look good, it's following trends and those change all the time. I'm trying to make designs that last the test of time. Yeah, you're going for that timeless look. Yeah, so also I designed Blade first because I'm like, okay, what do I want to design today? A Tanto, a Warrencliffe, a Bowie shape, or whatever. And like I said, I'll go from pivot to blade tip. Once I have my blade tip made, I'll design the outside, outer profile of my handle. So then close the knife seat to make everything as minimal. Because I do try to make my blade to handle ratios as tight as possible. Um, same thing, just kind of a couple points. Blade to handle ratios have to be as tight as, tight as possible. Um, the knife has to be designed to my manufacturing capabilities. Like, for example, my grinder, the smallest wheel I have on it is a quarter inch. So the tightest arc on the outside perimeter of the knife has to be no no smaller than a quarter inch or else I can't clean it up for a satin ground knife. Now, if it was a knife that, let's say, I designed it to be production and everything's just going to be sandblasted and tumbled, that doesn't matter. But all my folders are customs, so I have to design and be like, okay, well, if I need to satin to finish, this has to get sanded. I can only sand things with a bigger than a quarter inch radius. And hmm. I, I'll see a lot of knife designs I look at it and I'm like, guys are just designing to design and they're not thinking about manufacturing process like when i'm making this knife how am i going to make it you make for example you make a knife with a 90 degree corner how are you going to clean that up with the grinder you can't or else or else you can in a sloppy manner but it's not going to be clean um and then when i close it decide how much do i want how much the how much the tip should be inside the handle outside the handle and then i design the backspacer for the same way as tight of a ratio as I can. Uh, I try to make the backspacer go as far down the spine as possible. So no matter what you're doing, you're designing for absolutely function over form in a practical way. And and like Elijah said, timeless. So a design Mm -hmm. that not only functions, but is aesthetically pleasing now and in the future, which brings me to my question. When you're designing this, do you think about the lineage of your designs? Like you were saying, like you can't get rid of like the micro or like some of your some of your other designs. Do you think about that when you're like, let's say 20 years in the future and you look back on these? Not really, because all my stuff kind of looks similar. Uh, I'm, I'm a very, I guess, non-organic maker. I'm, I, like, I'm not into the all organic, a lot of curves. I'm, I like linear shapes. Uh, like my favorite shape is a triangle. I just like straight things. So most of my designs are very linear and all chamfered and beveled and sometimes contour, but I don't go for like crazy contouring. I like a lot of big bevels to them. So when you start looking at most of my knives, they're all very straight with a very, like, usually 180 degree opening rotation so like say from when the, then the handle the blade doesn't like tilt downwards it's kind of almost straight and flow through so they all the designs kind of just keep they go on with each other it's also not for everyone a lot of people like heavily organic designs it's just not what i'm into and i make stuff that i like i don't I, I don't make stuff like oh what do people want right now it's i make what i like and i feel like i have a pretty i don't i don't have a very incl- i guess like my style, it's not just very for a couple guys. So like if I make a thousand knives, it's not. I'm. It's like everyone would still like that design. Like opposed to some guys that make very fantasy knives, and for the custom community, it works because they're not going to make a thousand. They'll probably make twenty or twenty-five, and they'll find the twenty-five buyers that really like super fantasy products. I guess like a non-user knife, but it looks great because it's something out of the ordinary you won't see on a production knife. 
which is the whole point of customs. Right. Yeah. You're so you're definitely not. Yeah, you're not worried about people loving your stuff. There's enough knife makers out there. Somebody will find something they like, but you want to make something that just stands the test of time. Stands the test of time is something I like. Like that's the reason I got into knife making. Was I like if I always say like if I got into knife making today, well, if I got into knife collecting today, I would not be a knife maker. Yeah, you'd be in trouble. The, yeah, the reason I got into it was designs weren't like they are today, and what I wanted and. I don't, like I strictly out of the six knives, usually four of those knives in my collection were always a compound ground tanto, which were always very hard to find mm. because no, pretty much no one made them. And my ideal knife was a compound ground tanto with a harpoon, and that just didn't exist. Like John Barker was pretty much one of the only guys doing that, and still he he wasn't exactly what I wanted, and they were hard to get. Um, so I was like, I, I'll figure, I'll try to figure it out myself. Now there's a lot of options close to that. There's a lot of right. guys doing similar work, so I probably wouldn't well, have we, had that motivation to figure it out myself, and I would have just bought them and just been a collector and been happy and probably been in school for engineering and made a smart decision and stayed in school. That's <laughs> the best catalyst to get something going is not finding what you want. Like yeah. I couldn't find anything I liked, so I had to make my own shit. Just make my own shit, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, I think it's safe to say that, uh, in school. Yeah, that Nick is a fan of Euclidean geometry. So a lot of straight I think lines. That's fair. Yep. Yeah. See, I didn't. I didn't go to school. I don't even know what that means. It's what you do. <laughs> that's that's your style. Your style is yeah. In like contrast, hard basically, line. what I do is like a lot of hyperbolic stuff. So. Well, I'm gonna start saying that and not knowing exactly what it means. Just yeah. go with it, brother. It's it's clear. I'm, I'm just going. It sounds smart. Cool. A little bit of a throwback. You did originally go to school for engineering. Yeah, I was in engineering. I just got into the degree, but I was between mechanical and. Uh, what was I even in? I don't even remember. Uh, I think I was. I know mechanic. I think computer engineering too. But like, eventually, I found out that like you don't get into the field until about ten years into into actually working and for that for that degree. Uh, so I was like, I'm just gonna be a desk jockey for ten years and hate my hate my life. So I was yeah. like, well, just figure out knife making. Right. I, I gave myself. I like I said, I dropped out. I think I was 18. And I dropped out fully because uh, I was still kind of making it, making knives, not full time, but as much as I can for sale. And I was 17 that first year, and then after I think my second blade show, it just got insane with the amount of emails and demand. And I was like, look, uh, I told my parents, I'm like, I want to drop out of school. I want to try this out for three years until I turn 21. Hmm. If I don't see this as viable once I turn 21, I'll go back to school and just, just three years learning period. It is what it is. But at least I got to try what I wanted to do and gave myself a chance to work on my hands. And I'm about to be 23 and I'm still here. Not exactly where I'd want to be, so I gave myself a new goal for 23 and I'm pretty much about to hit it. So that's what I would usually always do. Every time I hit a goal, I set another two-year goal and try to hit that goal and so on and so forth. That's, that's straightforward. You know, I, I think... Having having known you and talked to you, you're definitely business uh, oriented, which I think a lot of knife makers struggle with. Um, oh, and sure, it yeah. is it is really important. Like you have to understand that this this is uh, a hobby that develops into an addiction that develops into how to pay the bills, mm -hmm. and it's something that you still love, and you definitely are, are aware of all of those things. You know, at once. Mm -hmm. I usually get yeah, a little I angry a when people say it's a hobby. Like just just throwing that out there. Well, no, once but I mean as a collector. Yeah, like as a collector, you're like, yeah, oh, it's a hobby. A way of life. Yeah. yeah. Well, there there no, there definitely are hobby makers. About forty percent of uh, like thirty or forty percent of knife makers are hobby knife makers. They have full time oh, yeah, sure. jobs. 
Yep. They make they make them on the side, and they usually just funds their their addiction to collect things. So the wife won't let them buy spend a thousand dollars on a knife, and they have some garage space, and yeah. they'll make some knives themselves. And eventually, they make some money from those knives, or they'll do some trades, and they'll get the customs they want to get. And a lot like, of times, I think, I think a surprising amount of our industry, uh, the consumers and the casuals think that these guys are just like giant corporations or like full time making these knives when in fact it's just like one guy in his in his garage with a drill press and like that's it yeah or um, their basement yeah killing themselves because there's no windows extracting the freaking toxic air that we're grinding hashtag black lung yeah uh the black heavy, Me- heavy metal point black burger society hashtag heavy metal poisoning like, titanium is very like people don't realize how bad titanium is to grind because there's a lot of tungsten in it. So like, yeah. carbon fiber is bad, but I'd say titanium probably is worse to grind because really it's yeah it's 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 way easier than you think to get heavy metal poisoning. It's almost like lead poisoning once from you get titanium. It, yeah, because it, there's huh. it's high in vanadium, and vanadium oh, is a heavy okay. metal. So you grind it enough, and when I first started, I was like, I only wore masks with composites, and like if I was grinding steel or tie, I was like, ah, whatever, I just won't take big breaths. But it's steel, I mean, it's a metal, so the dust settles on like composites where it kind of floats. And then, like I switched my doctors, and he asked me what do I do for a living, I'm like... uh, I'm a coal miner. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm a knife maker, and it's a pretty toxic environment, but I, I try to use my PPE, my safety mask, my filters, and just I'm not the best using steel and titanium. And he's like, you know, titanium is really like dangerous. I was like, it's a metal. I say the same thing. I was like, it's metal, it settles. I just try not to take deep breaths. And if I'm grinding for a long time, I will wear my mask. But for like quick touching up a backspace or something, I didn't. And now I, well, now I have vacuums and, and other filters in place. Yeah, I was going to say, I've never seen that. you wear a mask ever. Uh, well, I'll still only I only put on my masks for carbon fiber. Okay, much. or like long. Yeah. You're saying like long term grind or like contouring yeah. or something. Long-term, yeah, like long term grind. If I'm just touching okay. up a spacer, I wow. won't put it on. But like you don't realize, I have the vacuum system set up yeah. for my grinder, and I have the air filters in the grinding room. Yeah, so grinding yeah, room room is pretty well set up. Too. Yeah, I have a dedicated grinding room, kind of to self maintain all that all that dirtiness. But before that, you know, I when I have even a backspacer. If I'm just touching it up, I'll wear a mask because I didn't realize how bad titanium was until I read up on it after my doctor mentioned it. And I was like heavily surprised. And I think like no knife makers know that. Uh, probably not. I mean, you know, yeah, whatever. It's fine. It's like I'll figure it out. Yeah, we're all going to like lose. Wear your masks, people. Life. Wear, your wear masks. masks. Wear your safety protection. It's important. Um, so uh, you have a few active models that uh, our listeners may or, or may not be familiar with um, associated with the MK1s, the pods, uh, your Kiradashis. Tell, tell us okay. about uh, some of your very early work, some of your some of your groundbreaking stuff that we may not have seen that really helped propel you into where you are now. Honestly, I just think it was the MK1. That that literally is what started it all back in the day. Like I said, no one was really grinding stuff that way and in that kind of format. Um, and if they did, they're usually very high in demand. They're hard to get. So when I started doing that kind of grind, um, that's that's exactly one of the reasons why I said it. Just after Blade Show, it just took off. I had a bunch of orders, way more than I could handle. And like every knife maker, usually they end up taking a bunch of orders, and then they realize I'm like, oh, I'm booked for a year, and then you kind of start hating yourself because hmm. you're just working off this orders, and you can't make what you want to make. And 
Um, so I became unfortunately I'm one of the knife makers that take orders, and but I I figure out a system for it. Uh, or I guess we're going to revisit this later when we talk more about like uh, how my ordering system works in the process. Or should I talk about that now? Well, um, look, I got a question. Yeah. Uh, back to the MK1, was that the yeah. first knife you designed, or yeah, that's the first knife I did. Well, that was the first folder I designed, and that was kind of based on the fixed blade that I was practicing grinding on. Okay. It was the same blade, a different handle. Yeah. Um, that was called, I was originally going to go with the numbering system because just MK1, MK2, and then I realized if I do that, once I get past MK3, everyone's just going to get, to get them confused. I was going to okay. make it simple, and I was really, and I think that, I think it's when uh, the first Iron Man came out, is when I started designing, to be honest, because he was using the mark the mark numbers. Yeah, I uh, thought about doing that for a while. I was a big fan of that. Yeah, but eventually when you have too many, it's like no one's ever going to know which number goes to which design. No. I mean, you, so, could, you could do that up to a certain amount, but yeah, it's going to get yeah. crazy. And then right after that, um, the second design I made, I was really into Norse mythology, and that's why I decided to go on. Like, all my other models are called Valkyrie, Ragnarok, um, Loki, the, the Graham, Fafnir, and some of these I just named aren't even out yet, but like, that's why I just kept going off the Norse mythology names. And that's probably where I'm going to stick to because there's tons of Norse lore that I could go off of. And mm-hmm. they all kind of fall on top of that. Like the Valkyries, call, I mean, the Valkyries are Warncliffe, kind of looks like a Talon. And so the, it reminded me of a Valkyrie. Um, Ragnarok just sounded cool and it's pretty much World's End. And that was just the larger version of a Tanto that I did. Loki, that's the ballad song that I'm doing. Just seemed fitting to name it Loki. Um,. The gram is a tiny two-inch folder with a lot of lightning pockets to make it really light. And the gram is pretty much a tiny sword that slayed Fafnir, which was a giant wolf. So I just kind of, I kind of yeah. try to find—I I look up, like, some of my Norse mythology books or just a whole bunch of Norse mythology terms. And I look at the definition, and I'm like, okay, that definition kind of looks like that knife design or something like that. So they, don't, they all kind of have a meaning behind them. They're not, they're not just a random name that I picked out, except maybe Ragnarok. But— Besides yeah, that, the other I can ones kind of fell behind the definition. I can definitely relate to that because sometimes you might look at a name and it'll just give you an idea for a knife. Yep, the name will come first. The Valkyrie is the second knife I ever designed, and right when I made it, I was like, that's a Valkyrie. And yeah. I think um, I was probably playing Halo back then, and there's in Halo 3, for you guys to know, there's a map called Valhalla. Oh, yeah. And to be, to be honest, I was probably playing Valhalla while when I just finished that design, and I was like Valhalla. I like Norse mythology, and I think that's how Valkyrie happened. Yeah, but I literally looked at that knife, and I was like, it looks like a claw, a talon. Uh, what's a cool name for? Because talon, there's a million knife designs like that. There's a lot of stuff named Valkyrie now these days too. I think there was something else named Valkyrie back then too. Um, but things like an axe. I don't remember, but it just that knife just just spoke Valkyrie to me for some reason. And that's where the whole Norse thing started. Cool. Any chance of uh, designing a Mark II in the future? Well, I was what the Valkyrie was going to be, but to just so just I, I, I just got away from the naming, naming system. system. Yeah, just kind of yeah. switch and evolve. I, I, I thought about switching the MK1 name, but I was like, yeah, it just it's it would say, let's say it's my like I guess you could say legacy it was the first design. That's what started everything, and it also became the base of my knife designing style. Uh, yeah, you got so lucky right out of the gate and. Uh, Design your first as your first complete model was like the groundwork for your entire company, pretty much. 
which is pretty yeah, awesome. Every, every knife I make, if I could put a harpoon on it, it's going to have a harpoon. Gonna have a every harpoon. knife I make. Or if I usually always start designing a Tanto, and I'm like, fuck. I just I love Tantos, but when you start doing this full time, you have to grind every week. Grinding Tantos day in and day out sucks because I'm yeah, like very okay. anal about the transitions of hollow or flat. And it's just money wise, you start losing money when you start getting super anal about it. But unfortunately, you have to be. And I, I have some simpler designs in the works where it's like not like the, like for example the bbm project with rob that was great to grind because it was a tanto that i didn't have to compound grind so that yeah. was nice um do you want to jump into the question about the isham like the elijah isham ncc knife collaboration no, no. stuff Just wait a minute on that one yeah okay no comment on that so, one, yeah. <laughs> hold on so as far as harpoon tantos go i mean i feel like we should make a note about that um you were saying before how hard it was to find, and I really feel like that's a signature blade style for you. So would you easily say that you were the first person to do that style grind in a readily available circumstance? Oh, oh readily available? Uh, definitely not, because John Barker was probably readily available when he first started. Okay. But after John, you I, were probably I, the second I, I, one. I could somewhat confidently say that I was probably one of the first five guys to make that popular. Okay. Yeah. Uh, think because I could I could I could name two, and that's I can only name two, and I'm not going to say three. So just in case, I could say five. Right now, I could name like twenty five. So it's a big difference. But back then, I could probably name two. So I'm just going to say one of the first five. But um, I just I yeah. feel like there's a lot of like having talked to you in the past. I feel like there's a lot of people that do it now, and I feel like you have expressed in the past. You're like a lot of people you know, call me on it and you have to correct them and be like, listen, bro, I was doing this like way back in the day. E- so I'm, I'm trying to give you credit now for being like, okay, like you were some of you, you know, you were the, some of the first pioneers, you know, for that harpoon Tonto. Uh, there's, you know, I, I once a lot of people say this, that there's only one specific maker, which I get compared to a lot, but at this point I kind of stopped because people started realizing really what time dates, this and that. I, I, I just, I ignore him. I'm like, look, I'm not going to get into this. Just if you want, everything's on Instagram. You go back to 2014, right. you'll see me grinding this. Hmm. Didn't look as good, but you, the general format was there. Oh, damn. Um, the DNA had been. 2014. Yeah. Of course. I grinding. I was doing what I can, and eventually uh, I got better. Uh, do you want to tell us uh, the Brady story that you've sold in the past? The Brady Monkey Edge? Yeah. Oh, well, oh yeah. Well, I, I was. Because I feel this, like, like that's, I have I not that's a crucial. That's a that's a crucial part of your. Yeah, that's actually you know. completely. Yeah, it's a big part of what it is. I completely forgot. So the, it didn't go from custom folders to custom. I mean, from custom co- collecting to making. Right. Uh, before that, I was actually really big into the bead game because beads were pretty big back then. And back to nature, like I said, since ten, since I was ten, I was always hustling and trying to find some business that I could do. And I knew this guy who ran the CNC lathe, and I came up with a bullet bead design. It was just something I didn't really see. It was simple, and there's a lot of modifications I could do to it. And the gun community and knife community kind of overlapped. And I had a this the. This guy with the CNC laid make me a bunch of 380 ACP, 45 ACP, and 9mm bullet beads in brass, copper, zerk, titanium. And I showed up to, I don't remember if I was 14 or 15, so 
I think I was 14 because I think it was the, the first time where when I was 14, it was the first time I went to the New York Knife show. Where I was able to go all three days and be there all day and talk to everyone because I took the train there. And I showed up there with bullet beads, nervous, and they were, all, they were just titanium for the first batch. They were two-tone where like I spent a lot of time figuring out how to mask them to where I could andize the head and the body differently. And... Yeah, you could call it brown bagging. I was 14 years old. I don't know about any rules, but I was just trying to show the guy, like, I make these. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they were done on CNC laid, not by me, but I still had to hand polish them, anodize them. They were deburr and finish them. They were rough. They were pretty cheap. This guy was kind of just figuring stuff out, and I had to do a lot of work on them. Uh, but I was pretty proud of them. And I was walking around the show, showing them to everyone. They were great. And then eventually I hit Brady from Monkey Edge. And I showed him the beads, and he loved them. And I had a whole bag of them, about like. Uh, I don't know, about eight hundred dollars worth. About they're about thirty bucks a pop. So I had a good amount. And walking around, I show him this. I show him. I pull out four different colors. He's like, "They're great. How many do you have?" Um, I said, "On the back's about eight hundred dollars worth. Uh, I think there's like, I don't know, forty, whatever is in there. I just show it was about eight hundred bucks." He's like, "These these work with my line. I love them. I'll take them all." And being four years old, I just. I, I was I was amazed that someone wanted this what I what I made and designed and he he took them all and then he called me a couple weeks later he's like you have more and of course I didn't because he really bought me out so I didn't spend that money yet and I took that eight hundred dollars worth and reinvested and got more beads and that time uh, I got made another another caliber size I added zirconium copper brass and then he took almost a twice a of an order I was twice as big and then I got a little bit more confident in my stuff because I was nervous that first time then comes around the March show because back then there was two New York shows and then that's when I got more confident talking to dealers and I figured out this whole dealer network and I started approaching Blade HQ Knife Center and that's when I started with, okay this might be a, this could be something more of a business mind you again I think at this point now I'm 15 still that whole business mindset where I could hustle and and I started looking into knife making as a thing, and that's the show that I won the hinders, and I had the money to buy those from the from the beads, and that's why I started buying knife making equipment. But for about three years, I was doing pretty good with those beads, and my plan was, uh, how do I get people to know knives that I make? Because there, there was no Instagram; yet. it was USN, and USN it took some work to get known. Now on Instagram, you make a knife, looks decent, you're going to be known pretty fast. It's pretty easy to get to a thousand followings on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, USN, you have to be active, be on the threads and blade blade forums. You have to really put in work and grind and be active to get known. And you have to get your knives in the right people's hands. Nowadays, you just take some photos of your knives. And if they look good, you're going to get buyers. Back then, you had to, you needed someone to vouch for you or attend every show. Um, so my plan was make these beads talk to every dealer and I think by the end of the first year I had about six dealers that worked with me and on my and so my name was on every single one of the dealers websites all the bigger dealers back then and uh, that's where I'll start eventually these dealers like we love your products they work great what else do you have I was like right now nothing but I'm working on knives cool once you make them we want them and I made my knives the first one I, I showed them to them I was like look they're nice and all I mean like they're, they're not bad for my first knives but I don't feel confident selling them to you guys because they're not that good I'd rather sell these first five to people who've actually seen them in person I'm like great cool and then like after about 15 knives I started working with dealers and then I started realizing I should make I don't like taking a 20 like a given dealers cuts and commission which is standard business practices i just couldn't afford to give dealers a cut on the on the folders so i started designing other products and today i have the kiridashi 
and the the path well, friction folder. Back then, before CNC, I just had similar kirdashis and other knickknack knives as I call them, water jet cut. They were simpler to make, but I, that's how I still run stuff today. It's I make folders, and like I said, I run I try to run this as a business. And I wasn't never comfortable of just making custom knives because they don't you don't really inventory them. You just make them, they go, or you're working off orders. So I was always worried about being sick for two weeks or something happening and me not being able to make money for two or three weeks. So it just made smart business sense to make, like I said, what I call knickknack knives. It's just things that kind of are sitting on the website. Dealers have them. So once in a while, a dealer calls you up. They take an order or just weekly. I sell a couple here and there on the website. And that just seemed like smart business practices. And I keep on doing that and just keep expanding my line of um, as uh, what I call inventory products. Just hmm. standard products that I make every time I'm low, I make some more. I always I always dig that story a lot because um... – you know, for from multiple perspectives, it's like, you know, you showed up with a product that you had put a lot of hard work into as a kid, and without even questioning it, I got to give it credit to Brady where credit is due. You know, this is a good product. It doesn't matter, you know, who the person is, how old they are, you know, do I know them? Do they have experience in the community? It's just, it's a neat thing that he knew would sell. And that he knew he had an audience for. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to take credit as a dealer like that. But, you know, sometimes that's why dealers work so well is because they can take a product like that and expose it to, you know, a large basis of people which you might not directly have had contact with. So, I mean, that's awesome that that worked out so well for you in the beginning, you know, and got that got that out there. I mean, out of curiosity, do you still make that bead anymore? Or when was the last time you made that? I ha- I haven't made these beads and God, uh, I've had the CNC since I was 18. I was making, the last time I made the beads when I was a locksmith. So before I became a full-time life maker, I was a locksmith. And I haven't been a locksmith in five and a half years. So I haven't made the beads in five and a half years. I still have some that just kind of been sitting in bags, scratched up. And once in a while, I have like these two dealers that still, they do a lot of international business. And for some reason, bees are still really big in Japan and China. Huh. And uh, every like once a year, they'll call me up for an order. And like I said, they're just in the bag all scratched up. And whenever they call me up for an order, I'll sit there and refinish and polish them all out for their order. But I don't even, I don't put them on my website. It's just they're there. I'll, a lot of times I'll say if I mess up and tell a guy I'm ship his knife out Monday, I ship it out Friday because I, I didn't finish as soon as I can or something came up. I'll just throw it in the bag and they're happy that they got something extra as a apology or something like that. They're just nice things to have around or someone visits my shop or uh, a friend of mine. I just want something I made. I'll give them the bead. That's well, be cool. Prepared to get a lot of questions about them now. That yeah, told that story for sure. <laughs> I, uh, watch out about I, that. I, I keep planning yeah. to sit down and really finish them to put them on my website. But it's just, it just beads were worth a lot more back in the day, I guess. And if I put them on my website, I feel like I have to cut the price. Yeah, there was a bead bubble for a bit there. To be fair, yeah, and if I put it on my website, I have to cut the price down, and it's not gonna be fair to those dealers because they still sell them at those same prices. That's kind of the reason why I don't put them on my website. They're just there, and I just I rather have them as like knickknacks and like same thing. Like if I ship out if I ship out something late or something like that, I just rather have something like a as comp a item. Yeah, as a giveaway item. No, yeah. because these things were paid off four, five, six years ago, and it's like they're just there. <laughs> That's why I haven't put them on my website. Once in a while, if I make a guy a knife that has a copper or something like on it, or without that, I'll throw it in there just because it matches. Yeah. 
I was never really into beads on a knife. I always thought it would kind of mar the knife up, especially if it had a nice finish. Oh, me neither. I never put them on yeah. anything. Yeah, I just like cool I said, have, yeah. I was I was, four, I was fourteen. <laughs> and I, I saw this is, a, this is a this is a business opportunity. Let's let's try it. I like them. They're cool, but just not on knives. <laughs> yeah. I have a keys. I think that's why oh, yeah. I had the beads. I think I put them on my keys as a keychain to just show off. So you guys want to get into some uh, community questions? A little bit for Nick. Uh, yeah, sure. We kind of covered. We covered like a third of them, but let's, let's keep going through them. Um, let's uh, see. Uh, you want to go for it, Elijah? Yeah. Uh, the venerable Terra fanatic would like to know uh, what's the hardest steel to grind. Uh, hardened S110V. Whoa. Oh wait, no, 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 no. Hardened S125V, which were I've only there's only been six. It's the call like the first ever collaboration me and Robert did. We made six or seven of those MK16s. Uh-huh. Um, and I even covered the whole story of like how I learned folders on USN. I asked the question about detents again before Instagram days, and Robert just put down his number. He's like, "Give me a call. I'll answer your questions about detents." And we we're on the phone for about six hours. There we go. Yeah, like a cell phone number. How you guys like started working together? Huh? Yeah, I feel I, like I should talk about that. It's a big part of my whole, even my whole career. Like he he left his phone number there. We called him. We talked for about six hours. Mind you, at this time, I guess I was fifteen. Maybe 16, probably 15, going on 16. So I was young. And he gives this young dude his phone number. He gives him a call, spend half the day on me at the phone, and the rest. The rest is history, I guess. Eventually, I taught him how to do CAD work, and he taught me folders. He he pretty much taught me how to make folders over the phone. Nice. Um, Then I. Yeah, then eventually we came up with the collab model. While the collab, I was showing him how to make, do CAD work. So he gave me his, uh, we helped him design up his um, F-16 model into CAD. And I had my MK-1 already designed at that time. Uh, oh, yeah, he, he so that there was one other. Actually, no, I didn't. When I designed my MK-1, I didn't know about Robert. I met him on the USN, and that's one other thing that worked out because we had very similar design styles even before we knew each other. So that's why a lot of our collabs work out because we literally just take the models that look similar and morph them. So we took the, his F-16 and my MK-1L, the larger version that I've been made in, in years, uh, and we came up with the MK-16. Uh, that was our first collab. I ended up flying out there into the... I don't remember December of some year, and we made about six or seven of those together. And I, at that time, I already made about four to seven folders because it was just within that first batch of seven. I remember, and then I made six there. So I made as many folders as I made on my own while I was there with him. And that was S125V, and to this day, well, it's been about five years and still the hardest steel I've ground. Man, right. I bet that was quite the learning experience being in a rob shop it was not even learning experience about working on knives it was more about shell shock from me being a new york city city boy to where where he lives you go to in the texas. backwoods in texas yeah I've, I've i've traveled quite a bit when i was younger but never to the south it's kind of like more of north america california and internationally i've never really been south in the of woods. new york i'd say yeah so yeah. i'm flying out there it's the airport and it's a two-hour drive to west bumblefuck texas off a dirt road to where there's no service whenever it's raining or it's cloudy it, it was and i went out there for two and a half weeks it was pretty it was, it was shell shock almost like yeah. giant giant bugs and all sorts mm-hmm. of weirdness and he's like yeah don't touch any water faucets or don't flip over rocks it's probably black widows and i was like oh cool so i could die 
mind you, like 15, 16. <laughs> and I'm just panicking over everything there. Now I've been there about three or four times, and I'm just, that's ah, whatever. So I'm without sure telling Rob us, feels the same way coming into yeah. the city. Oh, yeah, like, when he comes to the alleyway, he's like, don't go down that alleyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, don't go down that alleyway when it's dark. Um, it's still, he just, he's not used to all the people. But yeah, I learned a bunch when I was out there because I got to see it firsthand. And mm-hmm. same thing when I go out there. When I go out there now, since I do stuff in a very different way, I still learn stuff from Rob. When he learns to see and see stuff from me, and Rob's very not process orientated. He just get the job done. And when he sees me, I'm very process orientated. Like when he was here for the recent collab, we were working on thirty knives at once, and it's not a simple feat. I don't know most custom makers that work thirty knives at once. You got to keep everything in order. You got to make sure the parts of the knives don't get mixed up where it's not going to work because handles. Are tuned to blades, and blades are tuned. Uh, backspaces are tuned to, to blades, and everything's tuned to each other. So if you mix them up, you're gonna shit's not gonna work. So I have a lot of custom trays and storage, and just the process. Everything's down to the process. Spent about two years working on this recent process, and I would say I'm about eighty percent there to where I'm happy with it. Yeah, I don't know it's how you guys do it. Week. Working thirty deep. Uh, it's it, it it's a thing, especially where now I've never done it with two people except my father, uh-huh. and he had his own. My father kind of had dedicated tasks to do on them, but Rob kind of was able. He's he's my equal, so he's able to do everything I can. So it kind of got a little confusing. It's like, did you do this yet or not? And then like, did you set that lock or did I set that lock or was the lock set? It, that was the only thing that was in the process. I'm not. I didn't accommodate for two people being equals and kind of being able to do every part. So we kind of were losing track on what got. Done, what didn't get done, but we, mm-hmm. thankfully we didn't mix any parts up. Things just worked. Cool. So you and you and Rob have worked on how many collaborations so far? Uh, three at this point. The MK16 we made a couple of. Uh, the BBM we made about forty of. Uh, which was uh, market wise, it was a, it was a freak show for us because that knife had just. It had a cult following. It was weird, like a six hundred dollar knife because twelve, fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars on the secondary, which has never happened to either one of us. That knife became had its own cult following, and it just blew up. Um, people find that knife as a huge success. Yeah, marketing wise, and what the knife became was a huge success. But to us, it was a pain in the ass to make. Hmm. Uh, the, the, just the titanium handles. The titanium was bad. We had water jet delays. It, it, for us, on, on our end, building them, it was a shit show. We got them done. They all worked great, but we were stressed out. It was it, they just things didn't fall together. P- people who made promises didn't meet the, those promises. Deadlines weren't reached uh, with us. So, like when Rob came here for three weeks, we didn't get parts until about nine days in. It was a shit show. Thankfully, our recent collab we just did, the MK1RC, went great, smooth sailing. We were pretty happy with that. And that was the point of that collab was just that knife is pretty much a clone of my knife. That The handles, this, everything is the same. Uh, we just added a little scoop on the back of the harpoon to make it look like um, uh, his P40, I think, P90. I think it was a P40, but uh, it's pretty much my knife. Like you, the, the parts are interchangeable. But it was the point of this collab wasn't to make a new knife. It was to test the process. It was my new process, and then for me to incorporate him. So that way, for future collabs, because obviously, doing collabs together when you're flying out to each other's shops are not cheap. He's leaving his shop, and he still has bills to pay there. And he's flying out here. Things have to work, and. Uh, it went pretty well. Uh, okay. There's some tweaks that I figured out, and the next one should go better. But after the BBMs, we didn't know if we were going to do more. And thankfully, with this collab, uh, we know we're going to be. You're going to see some more stuff from us. Hmm. Awesome. Looking forward to that, for sure. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have our next one already planned out, and that one is a, another morph design. So that's a whole new thing. We're, we're probably we're not probably uh, we'll see. Maybe we'll do some more where it's kind of just my design and modify a little bit. So that way, because we, we that was one month of uh, one month like notice. Like I was just okay. You're flying down in the month. Cool. Uh, let's do the MK1 modify. Call it the MK1 RC. I already have all the CAD work done, all the fixtures done. So yeah, your scheduling for that was was pretty tight, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I was a little hectic. The only reason that worked was because I already had the CAD work done and the cat and the files. I mean, the fixtures. But literally, if I'm like, are we doing this? Yeah, cool. I'll be there in a month, and I have to modify the CAD work a little bit to mainly the blade. I had to build my website pre-order system, and which I'll talk about a little later. Um, just I really I had to. Do all the all, do all the advertising, the prep work. Call my water jetter. Call steel suppliers. Everyone's like, "Can you get this to me in two weeks?" This that I got a guy flying down, and it all kind of the stars aligned. I gotta say, because in a month we got a lot done to prep for about thirty-five knives. Just worked. Wow. You know, that's that like that collaboration process is is not only intense for obviously two different knife makers, but you know, I don't think people realize, you know what goes into things like that, like uh, coordination and logistics, you know, material prep, machining, you know, uh, each that, one's a customer. Yeah, we witnessed it firsthand. It was a yeah. pretty crazy experience. Oh yeah. It's just just witnessing show. that. It's, just, yeah. it's fueled by lots of caffeine, cigars, and whiskey. Just oh, make yeah. it happen. That's not the best and way. That's how knives are made. Cigars. Yeah. If you didn't know, if you didn't know, yeah, but like a lot you, of cigars, like the B, the BVM and the MK one RC, like, they're all about 35, 40 knives. Each one was a custom order. We didn't make them how we wanted. Like I had a custom order sheet. Each one was custom built to spec. And mm-hmm. I take a lot of pride in my in my in my order process. Like I put a lot of time into like I'll give you an order list, and you're gonna have every single option I order. And it's a pretty big list of options, which some guys love and some guys hate because then they can't make up their mind. And there's a price next to every option. Something I, I started this about two years ago because I always saw like the custom order process is always a pain in the ass. I'll have a customer send me a picture of another knife and it's like, can you make it look like that knife? Or uh, I want the blade to look like this knife, the handle to look like this knife, the clip to look like this knife. And it's always hey, be a pain man, in the ass. You have some individual tastes. Go on. <laughs> well, well it, it's always it, that was always kind of how it is. It's like they can't tell me what they want, and I also didn't have set options. Yeah, people are very uh, undecisive. Yeah, and it's usually until you start making a bunch of knives and you usually like look at my past work. Yeah. Or uh, usually someone shows you something and you make it like that. And I kind of eventually came up with a whole list. I spent a lot of, essentially I spent a lot of time now. If I could just kind of transfer onto the next model, it takes me a couple of days. But I, I probably spent a good month on my website building out this list and options. I've seen your I've there. seen your website. It makes sense as as a dealer who's gone to order from custom makers in the past. I do a lot of exactly what Elijah said, which is I just Google pictures of old knives they've made and been like, hey, like I like this, I like this part, I like this part. Like, can you do that? So, I mean, I do appreciate Nick's attention to detail on the ordering process when it's like, you know, Man, every you single thing is lined out. And you gotta yeah, ask what the price is, and yeah. I'm just like, uh, I yeah. don't know. Let me count that up, and then I'll something. You, they'll tell you twelve hundred, and then like, you ask them a week later, and they'll they'll tell you fourteen because like they're just coming up with the price out their ass. And I've done that in the past too. Just I don't know what the, uh, I I'll like a thousand for it. I guess I, I want seven hundred for it. I gotta, right. I gotta just do random. My site will never built. never have a set Quickly. price. Like it's like the backgrounds aren't right. A lot of the I gotta update a lot of text. I just spent a lot of time on the shop because that was the main point of websites these days. Websites don't matter as much as they used to. Yeah, but I not do as gotta, much, but yeah, it's good. Yeah, to have but 
it's mainly for the shop, but I gotta up. It's been two years since I updated the rest of the website. Like I gotta update the products page, oh. and I gotta finally change that stock background. It's been it's been the New York skyline for since ever I built it. I was like, I'll I'll use this for a week. Two years later, still the background. I mean, it's not bad. Yeah, just just generic. And yeah, I need uh, Jeremiah to come in here and take some cool panoramic shots of the shop. Uh, yep. I mean, I'm ready. I just uh, this is this is the year to do it. We've got time, you know. Gonna gonna get in there, do some drone shots of the uh, shop. No, 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 we have no time and no money. No, we have no time. And no and no money either. Like we got to get the drone. Whoa, the time. whoa! I got a few drones. Right. Yes, yeah, you guys got to get up on um, the drone. Excuse me. I'm all about the droning, dude. Need to get one of those. Uh, I need to get one of those. Um, Mavic. Pro Air Drive. I'm, I'm going to get your 40, Air. Whatever. You, Nick keeps trying to get my Air away from me. You know he was you like, want. I'll trade you a slip joint. I was like, what you, you know you about? want an NCC9 slip joint. I know I do because I practically tried to order six of them, but I like the Air the most. The Air is my favorite. The Mavic Pro is a bit big, but... That's the one with the Hasselblad, right? Yeah. The Mavic Pro the 2 with, with the Hasselblad edition. I like the air. The air is like a small comp. That's the one I'm going to bring with us to uh, to Vegas and to Portland because I want to do some Portland drone shots when we're up at uh, Bills. Nice. With the Mavic uh, Pro too? Uh, I'll probably just bring the Mavic Air because it's built for travel. I don't okay, know. Okay, cool. Nice. Yeah, like living in New York City, I want to see on top of all these big apartment buildings. Like, that's Good like luck. The, mystery the FBI in New York. will be like at your house in a moment if you fly that shit. Yeah. Well... You said it's just airports. I'm far enough from the airport. I'm like just far enough from five, five. five miles from an airport beneath probably 300 foot ceiling, which oh, is yeah. which is convenient because that, you know. So yeah, I can fly. I just want to see a top. Like I live in the area where there's no houses. They're just apartment buildings. Oh, so where you are. This, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just want to see on top of all the apartment buildings around my shop, like okay. around my house. Yeah, no I problem. I think it's interesting because they're all very like I've been on top of mine and like you see other ones. It's all they're all very unique. And then there's shit up there that you're always like, how the hell did I get up there? I haven't. Yeah. I, yeah, so that, I do that with houses. Yeah. And you're like, you look at that and you're like, what, where did that come from? What century did that land on the roof? Yeah. Like, like how did that balloon get up there? Like you've been to New York on the train system. Like you take the yeah. train and you see graffiti in these weirdest places. And you're like, how did, did you he, do that? Did a guy hang him out the window holding yeah. him by his feet while he was drawing this upside down? Like, how did that get there? It's a graffiti stick. Well, like a selfie stick, but with a paint can at the end it's of it. It's impressive stuff, man. It's, no, but sometimes it'll be like on the side of a building where it's like there's no way he could do that unless it's a crane, and that's definitely not commissioned work. This guy like rappel off the side of the building, dude, yeah. get the hell out of there because you could tell uh, it's like a local uh, like a street artist or something. It's not. It wasn't commissioned work where you had, he had a crane. It's no, like he was he just, he was off just the side messing of the around to like be like, oh, how'd you do that? Like exactly this conversation. Like how'd you do that, dude? <laughs> Yeah, I've seen some do dope that. footage of like my friends using them, and like they find all crazy shit up on top of these buildings. So that's, that's pretty much what I want to do. I mean, things look different from about 125 to 150 feet. You'd you'd be real surprised. Um, yeah. Well, I'm gonna bring that to to Vegas, and we'll take it up to Portland with us. Good deal. All right. Uh, community Got a little sidetrack there. Let's but see. We'll, uh, get back on topic here with Nick. Uh, uh, let's see. Wieners and Steel some... wants to know uh, how much weight did Rob put on during this last collaboration? You can easily say pass. Uh, I don't know. He, he kept bitching that he was gaining weight, but he's, he was definitely a happy camper eating a bunch of my mom's food. So you don't get normal home cooking all the time. Dude, side note. 
I've stayed with Nick and um both stay with me. Yeah. Nick's yeah, that's, mom that's is quite the experience. Nice. It's Nick's it, mom. She, shout out to Nick's mom. Yeah, hey, you, you have Nick's a mom. You have a Russian Jew in it. That's killing it's it like, for the breakfast. That's a killer host. You got a Russian Jew? It's just you wake up, there's like four options of breakfast, coffee, tea. Four options. There's like chocolate. There's like all sorts of stuff. It's a full flight breakfast. So everybody go to Nick's house. You you could sleep on the tent in the shop. That's about it. Hashtag not everybody is invited. Um, all right, how about mom. Yeah, hashtag right, get your own. All right, Robert uh, Oldicker wants to know uh, best knife sharper? Question mark. What do you got to say? Uh, by the way, Rob Oldicker makes some killer knives out there in Texas. Uh, I got one of his ninja stars that I got to post up here. Oh, I keep throwing, I, I keep throwing it up at a wall. The ones you, you guys saw here at the oh the, yeah, that's the dude from Texas. That's yeah, right. that's Rob oh, Oldicker. some pretty cool stuff, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I, I keep throwing that thing, and then I forget which wall I threw it at, and then it goes missing for a while, and then I find it, and I throw it again, and it goes missing for a while. Oh, that didn't um, nope. I, I like, I like for I don't sharpen my knives on the grinder because one, if the customer needs to re resharpen it ever, he's gonna have to reprofile it. So I use a Wicked Edge, and I love that thing. Just there's probably newer stuff out there. I've had this Wicked Edge for like seven years. I just change out the stones, but it works. It's a cons- I get a consistent angle. Customers could resharpen the knives easily, and even aside from that resharpening, it just it looks so much nicer on, on the Wicked Edge opposed to the Grinder Edge. Hmm. Cool. Uh, let's see here. Josh from PBK would like to know why did you quit doing adult film, and what is the cost calculation for building a base model? Good question. Uh, well, I was on the heaviest set category originally when I started the adult industry. Then when I lost the weight, it just it wasn't as lucrative as knife making, so I had to move on. Wow. Okay. That's sound investment. Yeah. Yeah, that's legit. Uh, and what about the second part of the question? How do you calculate the base model? Um, the hardest the hard, question. That's for the a hardest knife maker question ever. ever. <laughs> I gotta say, I think I got it a little better. So first off. It, 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 it starts where I look at the 3D file, I come up with a process to machine it. And then I have a base hourly rate my machine needs to make per hour when the actual spindle is running to compensate for tooling wear, coolant cost, electrical cost, wear and tear on the machine. And that's where it starts. It's first the machine, when I do all the programming, it tells me exactly how long it takes to machine those parts. Usually add 20% for the time of putting the parts in and out, setting up the machine. So it says it's an hour, then it's an hour and 20. But just an example, that, that, that gives me the first price. So let's say I'm just throwing numbers out. So say now it starts $200 just for machining. Uh, then I do the whole cost calculations for what it costs to make the knife. Usually it's anywhere from $50 to $100, depending on the size of the knife, the way you need to fixture it, the materials, the thicknesses, the processes that need to be made. Uh, but that varies. Like I said, it's anywhere from $50 to $100. Um, now there's this whole thing of what's my name worth at the moment let's say so that there's a price you slap onto there usually you slap that on after you have your base price Hmm. so it's what you need to make and then it's like what's my demand let's say well you can't get a knife from me anyway there's the the value there's a secondary market so i sell a knife for six hundred dollars but the secondary is nine so these people are making fifty percent 
on the knife. It's a lot of money. Oh, let's put $100 on my base price. Let's make it seven. He's still making 200 bucks. He's happy. I get to charge on $100. Um, but then there's that whole order list that I mentioned that I'm pretty proud of. Usually my base price is pretty low, and that's just for basic Chanford, everything sandblast is so much, but there's a ton of options, and every single option has a price, and that's mainly... I, I, I'm pretty good at setting the, the pricing for the options, the base price takes a little while, but like that's what goes into it. I calculate the machining cost, the, the the in demand factor of what I and the amount of years and the quality of my work. Uh, you look at the secondary. You never meet your secondary. Like if, you, if people are selling a knife for thousand dollars and you sell your knife for the thousand from you, that's a quick way to go out of business. Because like I always say, people buy knives. Like people don't just buy custom knives because they everyone's a millionaire. Most in reality, most of our customers are college students, people who have normal jobs who can't really afford to buy all these knives. But the reason they do it's also kind of a placeholder for your money. You buy a knife for a thousand dollars. You, it, you, if you don't destroy the knife, you know that you're probably gonna either break even in four months when you're bored of it, or you need money. Maybe lose a hundred bucks if you made it, made the bad bad choice of the maker or make a couple hundred bucks sometimes you buy a knife for six hundred dollars and you have it for six months and this guy became really popular and now it's worth twelve hundred dollars that's just mm. called a good investment yeah no that's true that's how yeah um, people buy this stuff and they they know that it's um the money they put in can definitely be extracted from the item as long as it's well taken care of yeah, it's it's like it's like why do people like I say like people all the time like oh why is someone gonna buy a seven hundred dollar knife and not this twenty dollar knife at Home Depot? And I'm like it's people don't buy my knives because they're the best knives in the world. You ask me what's what's a really good high end knife to buy? Should I buy one of your knives to use? I'm like not really. You want a really good knife? Uh, how much you want to spend? hundred bucks? Um, a company called ZT Kershaw. Two hundred bucks also ZT. If you want a really good high end knife to use, but besides that, customs it's not why people buy them. They buy them to enjoy them. Sometimes they want to use them if they use them and carry them like when i collected i use most of my knives and i mm. consider it man jewelry it's like why do you have a watch you carry your watch it gets scratched but people see it. it looks nice looks good on your wrist knife looks good in your pocket and it looks good when you use it just makes you happy when you carry it uh but majority of the guys don't carry them they just keep them in their pelican case and flip them at the tv but they know that it's a placeholder for their money same thing with, like people buy gold why do you buy gold you're, you're hoping the value is going to go up not down or it's going to keep its value so it's a way to not spend your money because you have it so you just put it in gold and if you have gold, you can't always just spend it instantly. You have to transfer it into cash. Uh, but just just a placeholder for your money and hopefully an investment if you buy the right people, the right knives. Yeah. No, you have fun in the process. Yeah, exactly. Let's see here. Uh, Mikhail39B like, uh, wants to know... Oh. BBMS question mark exclamation point question mark, yeah, exclamation. BBMs uh, yeah a couple guys asked that question uh, me and Robert get that question almost daily in our email and Instagram all over the place like I said before that knife kind of just had its cult following and everyone wants one um, maybe we'll make some down the line uh, there might be a possible production run coming out soon with that not going to talk about that right now but um yeah because we don't know if we're going to make more customs maybe we will but sometime this year there's gonna be a production room with soon to be announced manufacturer i guess but more on that later so unconfirmed yeah that's uh that's very tantalizing for the BBM fans uh, no, out there. I, I guess, uh, let's say, here, I haven't announced it anywhere, so I guess I'll make an announcement. So at some, some point this year, 
manufactured to be announced. We're, we're, I'm already working on it. There will be a BBM production uh, with a couple variations. Oh, Stay what? Yeah, and you don't get it. No, I'm joking. Uh, yeah, so so stay tuned for that. Hopefully, I'll have some information mid-February for that. Nice. So, big right, announcement. That's, that's good. If, big we news. A, if, we, if we had a soundboard, there'd be like a boom. Boom, 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 Explosion. Boom. We're, not, we're not knife nuts, and we don't have that money, so. And we don't have that kind of production. Hey, come on, no production value. Where's our I'm soundboard? working on it, okay? I'm not Dave over here. I'll get a soundboard. Insert explosion. Yeah, insert explosion no, we, here. No, no. I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't be happy if you have a soundboard. By the way, Jeremiah does our editing. Awesome. I do. But uh, I think we all need a soundboard. I think we all. Oh. Unless they're really right. expensive, I don't know what they cost, but I feel like we all should buy ourselves soundboards. I think oh, so. Man, we have, that's definitely gonna happen. So we have free reign of just explosions and just at any uh, moment during the podcast. Whoa, boom. I'm definitely gonna abuse that thing the first time I get it. <laughs> All right, we'll put that in the list. Sound soundboards for three soundboards, three X soundboards for Bladeology. All right, yeah. what uh, what about uh, EDC fixed blade market? Uh, KF Zofa wanted to know um, what's the possibility of um, a more EDCable fixed blade. Does it have to do with the sheath styling or the mounting of the sheath yeah, so, to the waist? What's going on with that? So yeah, I remember this question on the on the on the th- on the post about asking questions. I'm not exactly sure what he was asking, just my opinion on the, the market or what or if I'm making some. So I'm just gonna answer as if do I plan on making some? And yes, I do have a design for uh, about two and three quarter inch kind of EDC neck knife size and about three and a half inch for just EDC and around the house for camping use. Uh, and the reason for that is I'm, my dad's been working with me part time for the last year on weekends and proud. I'm happy to announce that he's mostly going to be full time with me by the end of February. Awesome. Um, obviously, because of quality standards, there are custom folders and locks and mechanisms. I can't have him do most of that work. He does some of it, like finishing and tumbling and sandblasting. But all those, as I mentioned before, those shrinket knives, he does most of that work. The kiridashis, the pods, uh, all the kydex work that I've done, my dad does that. So uh, I'm probably going to be making some EDC fixed blades very soon. The variation of uh, blade shapes and handle materials. So that way, just more work for him as in kydex sheets, finishing, assembly. Um, sharpening, not really. I got to sit with him and teach him some wicked edge stuff. But next six months, you're going to see some ADC fixed blades in various sizes and materials and shapes. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely remember before uh, before I knew you that well, I think on that infamous car ride down to uh, Blade Show probably two years ago now, um, you sold me in the truck a Kiridashi and at the time, I thought it was a very token purchase, but I came to really enjoy it. I mean, it's a very practical, small, like almost thumb drive, USB size uh, fixed blade that um, I drop like carry like all the time without even thinking about it and actually like use it quite a bit. Um, it's well, very was, practical, actually. You saying <laughs> USB was size. actually my motivation. If you see, it's just very straight and linear. Yeah. Two reasons why it's super straight and linear. One, USB, because the Kydex sheet, you kind of just pull it in, use it really quick, like as if you put it in the computer, and then you put it back in. It just It's there. It's on your keys. You forget about it. One-inch blade. It's also O1 tool steel at like 64, 65 Rockwell, which you should never do on a knife. But something like that that cuts cardboard and paper, it'll hold the edge forever. Like You're not going to be using that in a way to where hopefully you're not going to chip it or snap it because it has a very fine tip. You're not supposed to pry with it. So I made it super high Rockwell that you wouldn't use on a folder just so that way it holds edge for a while cutting cardboard and paper and tape. But um, 
like I said, the reason it's that it's the size it is as a USB and I needed to make it as a budget product and I was offered a lot of precision ground on one that was rectangularly shaped. So there was supposed to be minimally minimal work on it, making a bunch of them, make a whole bunch of variations and it seemed like a great dealer product. No, it's it's a very cool little knife. I, like I said, I really I EDC that all the time, actually, and uh, I cut a myriad of different things with it. Um, yeah. while in the field so it's it's very cool this next one i'll i'll go ahead and jump on this even even though it's elijah's turn uh human reason wants to know when is the elijah x ncc collaboration going to happen when are you guys going to work on a knife together 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 i, I don't know what he's talking about me and elijah i have no idea who elijah is which is um, does anybody know who Elijah is? I don't know, because me and Elijah are both kind of 50-50. We don't know the exact story, so we're not getting too in-depth on this. We we do talk about it, obviously, because we do our podcast together. We hang out all the time at all the shows. Holy uh, shit. I didn't even realize. But um, yeah, we I are talking about person. it. Something's going to happen eventually. And yeah, uh, like, eventually. One day. like I was mentioning before, if we're going to talk about <laughs> the collab. Something a month from now, six months from now, six years from now, we don't know. Something. But... Um, like I mentioned that the Tantos get a little annoying to grind when you're doing a bunch of them in full time. And I told Elijah specifically, I want some, every time I try to design something, it's always a Tanto, unfortunately. Well, 75% of the time it's a Tanto and I'm trying not to do a Tanto so I can do a single bevel and a swedge. And, and I do believe much- I've only designed maybe two or three Tantos in my life. Yeah. So. so I told him, like, it's perfect. Just don't make it a Tanto. And I'll grind it, and we'll make it. And so at some point, right. we'll be doing something. We don't so know So it's why. inevitable. Yes. Got to combine okay. that Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry. Yep. Mm. Have it collide. It's going to have a harpoon that I was like, my mandatoryness. Yeah. He's, he's, he's probably going to send me something, and I will be adding a harpoon to it. <laughs> it's either like going to have a harpoon or three. Who knows? Like three we'll or four see. harpoons? Yeah. And it's going to be called the triad automatic. No, never mind. The triad Max. Oh. Oh. Try automatic, try automatic. It's, it's gonna have a try automatic action. Try automatic. Try automatic. It's gonna be on on both bearings and washers, and have a flipper tab, and thumb studs on bearings, right. and be an automatic, and also a bow song. Yeah, yeah I mean Great. it's important for a, a knife that uh, you know also Looking using uh, anti gravity technology to yeah, be a try essentially action. that's. There's a you know there's a basis for custom knives that needs to be held up through the process and I think that those are good ways to do it. Yeah, fucking nail. Gotta bring in those interstellar collectors, you know. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, on to our next little uh, morsel here. K Jovalent would like to know if you're gonna bring back the MK1L. Um, hey Leon from Sweden. Um. I had a couple guys ask me about that lately. MK1, like, so when I made the MK1, it, I was going to follow, because back then uh, I designed this, thankfully, because I, I wanted to hinder, and I built my shop, and doing market research back then, a lot of guys would design a knife, and if people really liked that knife, they'd start designing it in different sizes. Like, the hinder had three or four sizes, I think three, and I made the MK1S and the MK1L. The S is the flagship one that I make, make to this day, and that's a three and a 
three and a quarter inch blade. MK1L is a large knife, uh, but what I did was I kept the same ratio width-wise. I literally just added a half an inch to the middle of the handle and half an inch to the blade, and it just made it longer. So it wasn't proportionally bigger, it was just longer. So it was almost kind of like a, some guys called it a Paki Katana. It was a very slim, long knife. That was a Tanto. Um... I'm thinking about bringing it back, but like I said, I've been trying to do my other three folders for the past year and a half, and somehow I keep I keep coming back to MK1S, and like I want to make something else. And I do plan on doing some some production knives, collabs with OEM manufacturers this this year. Either next year there might be a custom MK1L, or you're going to see it in a production fashion. Hmm. Now. I don't know if it is something that you do or don't want to talk about, but I'm going to interject. Do you want to tell us the story about that uh, particular MK1L that I know that you carry? There's there's kind of some interesting backstory to that one. Oh, uh, I don't carry it. It's just been in my case. I, I keep wanting to sell in, it. Yeah, in your Pelican. But I keep keeping it for the story, and too, I feel like eventually I'm going to want one of my old knives. That's the oldest knife because the only one older than that. A local collector had it, then Arizona Custom Knives had it, and then I haven't seen it in three years. So I feel like if I sell it, I'm not going to be able to find one of my first three knives. Um, It's the second knife I ever made, folder, I I, I should say. And it has black titanium handles, and now a bunch of guys have done it. But back in the day when I made that knife about four years ago, I was, I believe, the second person to ever do it. The first being Frank Fisher, and he told me how to do it. And he said, please don't share the process. And it worked out successfully because it's a very risky process that I don't offer anymore. Most guys don't do it because about 50-50 chance of the frames warping and fucking up. And then you scrap the knife because the knife that I made right after that was black tie. And I fucked up those handles and said never again. Um, but the knife sold. There was an auction, and there was another motivation that pushed me towards full time. Was a knife like that would have probably been six hundred for me, six fifty, and I got fifteen hundred for it in auction. Because two guys really wanted it, and went in the bidding war. Fortunately, the knife got lost by USPS. I didn't know how to handle the scenario because I don't know if the guy was lying or not. Because the knife said delivered, but he said he didn't get it. Um, I was young. I said this when I first started. I was probably sixteen years old. Uh, maybe 17 at the time. I don't. I don't remember. It's been like four or five years, and uh, no, it's probably it's been five or six years actually. And uh, yeah, I lost. I didn't know how to take it. The guy told me he has his vast collection, but his Instagram didn't have any photos of knives. I don't know what to believe him. And he gave me some references. Luckily, one of the references was a buddy of mine. Gave him a phone call. He said this guy's legit. If he said he didn't get it, he didn't get it. Since I was new, and I got paid twice as much as I would have sold a knife for. I felt it was only right to make the guy have a brand new free knife. That's what I did. And then two years later, I got a phone call, I mean, a text message at like two in the morning saying, is this knife really worth $1,500? And I was in bed, it's two in the morning. I kind of brushed it off till the morning because I looked at the photo quickly and I was like, oh, it's just the replace, I guess the guy sold the knife. The replacement, the, the replacement made for him, woke up in the morning and realized, remember, the replacement was a satin ground blade and not a two-tone acid wash blade. Realized that was the original one that got lost. After talking to that guy for about a day, trying to buy it from him, he was being a little reluctant. Uh, I was like, look, I could have taken legal action, whatever, got it, because it was stolen mail. I paid Tom, look, I'll just give you 250 for it. I just want the knife. He's like trying, he was trying to get a thousand out of me. He's like, no, it's sold for 1500. I was like, look, take legal action, get it for free. Also, that knife would have been six, 650 from me. I'll offer you 250. I see that it's rusted and scratched. I don't know what they did with it. I just want it for nostalgia reasons. And this is about 
three. This is the yeah, this is uh, this is longer than two years ago. The, this was about four years ago. It was two years after the sale of the knife. Um, eventually, he's like, "Fine, I'll sell it to you for two fifty. And then he wouldn't tell me what he got for it. Once I got the knife in, he got his money. I was like, "Look, obviously, I already paid you the money. I have the knife. I'm just curious, how'd you come to this knife?" I don't know if he stole it or what. Yeah. So he he told he was uh, some prominent guy who was known in the yo high end yo yo market, and he said he traded thir- he's traded a fifty dollar yo yo for it and thirty dollars cash <laughs> for some guy trade. Yeah. The 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 kid said he got it from his uncle, and then he the kid traded it on in the Facebook group for thirty dollars cash and the fifty dollar yo yo. Dude, that yeah, is a legit absolutely. deal in so, his part. So his uncle probably stole it. And then gave it to his nephew, and then his nephew traded it for a yo-yo, and wow. and then I over and I overpaid for it, and now I still have it, and I keep thinking, should I sell it? Because I've refinished it at this point, and every time I want to sell it, because there's two guys that kind of always want to buy it, because it's such an old knife, and it's the only it, I've only made five MK1Ls, and every time I want to sell it, I'm like, nah, I feel like eventually I'm gonna want one of my originals just to compare, and I'm just not gonna be able to find one because I yeah. the one that I EDC every day is about the fifth or sixth knife I ever made. But after the fifth knife, I sat down again and ground about 20 tantos. And from the fifth to the sixth knife, you can't even compare the quality of the blades. So, like, you looked at the knife that I EDC and that, that MK1L, the second knife I ever made, and the blade grinding quality is, like, night and day. So I feel like I have to keep one of these, like, first ones just for future records. No, I definitely, having handled that specific MK1L from your Pelican... I, I like it. The size is like enjoyable. Um, it's a large knife. It, it's very it's, slim and it's giant. Uh, but I can definitely over over the time I've handled it and then handled more of your your newer models. I can definitely see exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, these are finishing. The yeah, the action is is smooth, but the finish on the blade is like yeah, it's like it is. It's definitely it's noticeably different. It's not bad, but it's noticeably the new ones are an improved style. But I, I, you know, I kind of do reminisce. I, I don't know. I'm not. I, I like the slightly larger version. It's cool. I think your oh, your modern like small it. versions are neat. I like it. It just, I, 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 I mean, I don't ever done. fucking sell that thing. I swear to yeah, God, you can't you sell, sell one of your that? first knives. Yeah, no. Wait, like, well, that, like, that knife has it's so been in that much Pelican cool case. Story. Yeah, like, it's been in that Pelican case for like four years. I made it. I made a guy replace the knife. Then I bought it back, and then. Like I said, the handles on it are perfect. I'm fully happy with those chamfers. The action's great. It's just the the blade blade grinds a little wonky. Nah, but, that knife is priceless, dude. That it has such a cool story, like behind, like you know, losing it and well, getting it back. Like the guy who asked that question. Priceless. The guy who asked that question actually has a bunch of my knives. Uh, and I oh, did is that cons- your Swedish customer? Yeah, so he has a bunch of my eyes. He's a great supporter. You, oh, okay. I, I talk to him all the time. Him and his buddy Kim, they're both great, two great dudes. And I've contemplated once or twice to offer to sell it to him at like less than what I sell my knives at currently, just because I'm not happy with the blade. It is refinished because I know he's gonna have it for a while. I haven't really seen him resell any of my knives. Uh, then every time I talk to myself, I don't like. Now I have to keep it. It's just too special, man. Like you can't ever remake the podcast. He's gonna text me. He's like, "Yeah, I buy that." Inevitably, and I'll be like, "Yeah, absolutely." No, no, you got it. You got to hold on to it. Um, Community question: Fifty Shades of Slash, who we all met at uh, New York Custom Knife Show, wants to know. He's a local guy. Yeah, he's a local dude. He's uh, he's cool. He's got um, 
He's got the only other uh, direwolf from uh, Reese, the ones that I don't have. Uh, he wants to know when you're going to build a big knife because they do like he he has a collection of very large knives. Okay. And by big knife, he doesn't mean like that MK1L. Oh. That's a three he and a quarter, like three and three quarter blade, which big. he actually wants an MK1L because he said it's it's still big enough. But no, he means like he wants a yeah. folder with like a six inch blade and a three like a quarter inch blade and like overkill big. Uh, and yeah, it's probably not going to happen. Maybe down the line when I get bored because like. I talked to Jeremiah and Elijah about this when they were in my shop. That uh, since I've been full time for about four years, I uh, it's not that I've been losing the passion for it. It's more like it just it's a full time job, so it's making it day in and day out. And this was as a kid, this was my dream was to have a fully outrigged shop so that I could build whatever I want to as my hobby. Like I wanted a house with a garage and have a woodworking shop. And now that I have technically that, I'm a full on shop. I haven't made anything for fun and ages like the last thing i made was the sword and that was about four years ago before that was an axe and i told them after they left i was like probably every two to three months i'll be just making a fun project and right now i'll be making battle songs but that's gonna be a product line so in the beginning it's gonna be fun because it's gonna be new and something different but eventually it's gonna be the same thing over again so i'll be making enough to where it's like okay it's now it's just about being business i'm uh not lose the passion for it just to be the same thing day in day out so who knows maybe i'll make an overbuilt knife as one of those every three month projects just because to as a hobby as the hobby part of being a knife maker to where it's like for the joy of it right on he also wants to know uh what are the future collabs what do you got working on now or or in the future that we can look forward to um currently literally as right before the podcast and right <laughs> after i'm still working on the rob carter collabs i'm actually grinding some in the grinding room um uh, we talked about there's gonna be some stuff in the future with elijah uh there's another project me and rob have lined up this year it's another uh-huh. model and that's a full another co-collaborated model not like the mk1 um what else? I will be. Oh, I, did, I just did a collab with John Gray. Uh, I have another one that I just sent him parts out for. So maybe there'll be another collab. There'll, maybe he'll have it with him in Vegas. Uh, I'll be making bow songs and sending them to a couple guys. Uh, most likely Ian CMF Metalworks will be grinding some of those and some other guys that I'm in contact with. Uh, just a bunch of stuff. I like doing collabs. They're fun. The only person I do collabs regularly with in proper batches is Rob. Uh, I guess Elijah, that'll be a proper collab once we get that going. Uh, I'll be doing, I'll be, I'll be making, manufacturing, and building the knives to his design. Um, besides that, just the uh, I'm always down for a bunch of the one-off collabs. They're just fun. There's something different. It's nice to see someone else build your knife in their grind style and finishing style. Like when I saw the John Gray knife when he made it, that was just, it was weird because it was entirely different than something I'd make. Like it was an entirely different style uh, than my work because he made that very linear knife somewhat organic. That was that was a neat collab you guys did. I, I like that. Seeing that in, in Kentucky was cool. It was very, mm-hmm. it was very cool. oddball. Very, very unexpected. You know, John's unexpected. John's John's style with your action. I, I gotta say, I kind of dug it. I kind of liked it. Yeah, pretty sweet. Yep. Yeah, maybe one of these days we'll we'll get around to finishing that nuck, but it's probably never gonna happen. So. Oh yeah, and then with Jeremiah, <laughs> just just for fun, because we like I said, we always talk and uh, always wanted to make one, not not uh, just a nuck, and mainly in just to test out machining patterns and play with a whole bunch of different materials uh we're gonna get around to it at some point but maybe in jeremiah we'll be doing a knuck and uh, i i approached him about it because he uh talk, he told we talked about in the pbk episode his uh his other brand impera 
he made a really cool like two finger knuck with a split knuck mechanism where it's split into two individual knucks with magnets and I thought it was cool and I wanted to do a single finger version so at some point we'll be making those as well I'm excited and, uh, I, think, I think the single finger would be really neat very very pocketable and then this year I'll be starting uh, I guess I don't know if it's collab or what but I've been for two years I've been trying to do an OEM production line of some of my stuff it'll be most of my custom designs except modified to a different size or somewhat they won't be exactly like the customs but uh, it's been two years in the making and this year it's finally happening I'll, I will have a, a side OEM production line that is awesome Wow, that's that's actually that's actually pretty, pretty big news. news. That's uh, incredible. Yeah, news. It's the yeah. first time I announced it. The people I talk to normally they know about it, but I guess this is the first time I publicly announced it. Probably still won't announce that on my Instagram until I get more information with the BBMs. But yep, once I get the final information on the BBMs and the OEM manufacturer settled, uh, I'll be talking more about it on Instagram. So I guess this is a Bladeology exclusive. Damn, that's why we need that that bomb we drop sa- sound, bomb sound God damn explosion. That was not as cool as just having a sound. Yeah, that, that was awful. That was not great. Uh, it's funny. Ed, ed, it's, edit that out and just soundboard yeah, it in. Explosion. Edit it in more. Boom, 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 boom. Um, just put it in the top right there. All right. That was the last of our community questions. So before I totally space out on all of them, uh, does anybody want some mezcal? I'll take some. No. Sure. Okay, I'll just pass them over there. I had a couple of questions about about heat treat and about um, etching Damascus Damascus properties and um, and sole authorship pieces. So uh, specifically, you know how I think that people underrate the importance of heat treat. A. Kill me with the B, kill me with the heat treat. Um, Talk to Damascus, me about how important heat treat is. Well, heat treats everything, mainly because if the knife's not hardened, it's not going to hold an edge. Also, if the knife on a fixed blade, a heat treat, it's just going to aesthetically going to be a fixed blade. And if you use it, it's not going to hold an edge. On a folder, if it's not heat treated right, it actually won't functionally work after a short amount of time. Because if the knife, the blade isn't heat treated on a folder, the lock will just keep it'll keep wearing into the lock face and actually be pushing into the steel and deforming the steel uh, and eventually you'll have 100% lockup really fast hmm. uh, as well as the st- stopping track from opening and closing you're going to start mushrooming, mushrooming, mushrooming out your track and you're going to also lose your detent because what's going to happen is you're going to start wearing in a d- giant track into your detent along, and also putting a ramp into the detent hole and your bearings are also going to wear through so like eventually if the knife isn't heat treated right uh, it doesn't have to be even heat treated properly to 60 Rockwell. Even in the 50s, it's fine. But let's say if it's unheat treated, the knife will mechanically just stop working because it'll just wear out. Um, just so even every, aside from holding an edge. Everything you're talking about has nothing to do with cutting anything. It has zero yeah. to do with edge retention or like nonsense like crucibles, metal, steel, German tool steel. This has to do with just mechanical operation of a folding knife. Yeah, you're talking about stuff interacting with itself. Metal against metal is going to, something's going to give. It's going to wear out. Whatever is harder is going to wear in the small thing. For example, blade steel, usually you're looking at about 60 Rockwell. Titanium, I I could be wrong. It's been a while. I think it's about 42 Rockwell. Uh, Ceramic detent and balls and ceramic bearing balls are about 95 Rockwell. Uh, So what happens is you have... Uh, and then raw steel before it's hardened is about 35, 38. So at the softest, before you harden it, your steel is the softest item. 
And that's where all the mechanics are working on is against the steel. So it's going to be the first thing to wear out. Now, if let's say if it's not hardened, now the titanium lock face is harder than the steel blade. It's going to start mushrooming out and wearing away your steel. On a traditional knife, when it's hardened and right, I mean, a knife that's done right, it's hardened. The blade is 60 and the, lock, and the titanium is 42. But titanium also has... There's there's just beautiful properties about it, and the reason we use titanium, it's very springy. It bounces back. Steel doesn't, so you push against it. It's gonna stay where it is, and it's gonna deform. So it's gonna start mushrooming out. Titanium, it's gonna push away. But then once you unlock the knife, it's gonna push back. This is something you're never gonna see. But on the micro level, that lock face will keep bouncing back. It is softer still, which will cause thick and going and wear. But and insanely, like let's say I, I don't. Let's say 10 to 1. I'm pulling number I'm pulling out of my ass. But if a knife is not hardened, it's going to wear out. Like while I'm building a knife, if it's not hardened, you can see where every tooth, every couple times you open it and close it, you physically see the D10 track being worn in, the bearings rubbing in. Uh, you could open a knife 100 times, you're barely going to see any wear on the lock face. But also, we counteract that by ca- carbonizing our lock faces. And it's just a very thin carbide layer, but that's about 70 Rockwell. So that's counteracting. So now it's almost as hard as the blade. And they're, they're pretty close enough to where they're not putting excessive wear on each other. Hmm. And now that the blade is hard, now the ceramic is still harder than the, the steel is. But when the steel is hardened, you do something called cold rolling. It'll slightly wear in, but when it's hardened, it'll kind of cold roll and become denser and polish out to where it actually stops wearing. And the ball bearings don't really wear in as much. The detent ball doesn't wear in as much. It probably It's most likely still wearing, but on such a microscopic level compared to where you open the knife once or twice with ceramic bearings and detent, you see it physically digging a track that you could feel with your fingernail. You could open it 500 times when it's hardened, and you probably won't even still feel it with your fingernail. It's just very minimal at that point. So mechanically, a folder, just it, you can't send it out if it's not heat right. A fixed blade, technically you could send it out if it's just going to be an art piece on the wall. Right, but it won't hold an edge. But like that is just so important that besides holding an edge mechanically in a folder, also if a knife isn't ru- heat treated, it's twice as likely to rust because uh, it's, I'm not a metallurgist, so I'm not gonna get too much into that. But just it get the grain becomes tighter once heat treated, and it's less likely to rust. Oh, I never knew that. So okay, so uh, a heat treated blade is actually slightly less prone to oxidization than a not heat treated blade. Yeah, like you look at all the stainless steels that are just sitting in my inventory for stock for making knives. They all have rust spots on because they're just sitting mm-hmm. here and they're not hard. Right. But I have hardened blades that kind of sit on the wall just as long and they're not rusty. They'll get rusty I, if water if, if condensation sits on them. But just because they're sitting on the wall and they're hard and they're not rusting, but just the raw stock that's sitting here, it's all kind of pretty rusty. What? So like the grain structure must be tired together. I mean, I know you're not. Oh you're yeah, not a metal treated, artist, it, but. It, once once you heat treat it, you're yeah. quenching. So the process is 1950, 1920, 1950 average for stainless steel. And so there's a video on my Instagram where you, you could see me actually doing this. You pull them out when they're red hot. And the, that moment when you quench it between two aluminum plates or oil or dunking in oil, depending what the recipe calls for, different steels are different. It hardens in that instant. So let's say that ABL, for example, has a 10 second window. So in 10 seconds, you have to drop it from 1925 to essentially room temperature. 
hard. I think it's under three. It's not room. It's like I think it's like under three hundred degrees. It's in that instant, it becomes hard. And from being red hot to workable temperatures, all the steel settles, and now it becomes hard. So if you take a soft piece of steel, you could bend it with your hand, and it'll take bending back and forth, bend it back and forth till it snaps, because steel work hardens so the more you bend it it starts to actually harden at the bend and it'll snap you look hmm. at the grain it looks like concrete it's very it looks very porous uh but if you harden it it the, the grain structure tightens up and it, you can't bend it you have to physically try to snap it by putting it in a vice a press hitting it with a hammer but once you get it to snap and you look at that grain it looks like glass it's very smooth not porous there are some steels that look porous but nicer steels that we like modern day steels we look at with finer grain structures once you harden it it the structure is almost like glass which less likely to rust because less porous when talking about uh heat treating um i've i've heard you say this before and i've talked to other makers and they uh they talk about this recipe which is a very interesting thing and i know what you mean um now that i've talked to you about it but a lot of that comes up when when guys are talking about um, different steels, different different knife blade steels, and we have these extensively nerdy conversations about M390, Nitro VAEL, you know, 440, whatever, and we talk about them from a from a user perspective, from you know, oh, I can cut all sorts of stuff, but the recipe to get the steel to where we're already talking about using it, what can, can you sort of give us a a better idea of the recipe. So every steel has its own recipe, but can you, can you give me a better idea what that means? So every steel has recipe, and I, I always address this wonderful book by Guy Fier. And the first rule is slather in barbecue sauce, put it on broil for three twenty-five for an hour. <laughs> okay, I like it. No, all right. No, but um, and it falls right off the bone, right? Falls right off the bone. Falls right out of the uh, stainless steel foil packet. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it does not. It always gets stuck to the foil packet, actually. But uh, <laughs> I mean, not when you use the barbecue sauce, though. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a yeah. lubricant. Barbecue sauce, but when Spain has to interact with um, yeah, grease. But I, I, grease. I prefer, I, but I prefer baby powder. Baby. Oh. Okay. So trade secret: put baby powder inside that steel packet. Put the blade in there. Keeps it from sticking. But uh, generally, there's not one number. Every steel has its own recipe. You usually have to get uh, on the manufacturer's website. They usually have the chart. Carbon steels, generally, you quench them at about 1,500, 1,600 degrees, and then they're hardened. And when they're hardened, every steel has its kind of range, which could be anywhere from 63 to 68, depending on the steel. And that's as, as what they call as quench. Hmm. Um, stainless steels are about 1,900 to 1,950. Carbons are about 1500 to 1650. And then they're like the same Rockwell as Quench. Then, but at that point, the steel is very tight. You have to stress relieve it and temper it and pull that, the, that Rockwell down. People always say that it's so brittle like glass where you could drop it and it'll crack. Uh, that's a yes and no. In reality, not really, but let's say you are some really tight 90-degree corners, and in the perfect scenario, you drop the knife at a weird angle, and there's a really sharp corner. It could crack right at that corner, hmm. but it's very unlikely. If you drop it on concrete in the perfect angle, perfect scenario, the, w- the wind is blowing south, it might crack. But, but Because it's so brittle? Yeah. It could, it, the, I th- you're asked quench. One, it's super brittle because it's a very high Rockwell. Yeah. And two, from what I understand and talking to guys, the steel is so stressed at that point and tight 
that you need a stress reliever. So when you're tempering it, bringing down that Rockwell a couple points. So let's say I use ABL usually at temp when ask at quench. It's about 64 Rockwell. Um, 64, 65, but I, I pull back the temper to about 61, 62, which is a little high. Usually it's 59 to 61, but I like it a little harder. So 61, 62. In the same process, in the same time, while you're bringing down the Rockwell to usable, to use uh, to safer range so it doesn't chip or break, uh, you're actually stress relieving. And then the, the carbides and the steel and the structure of the steel, everything starts to settle. And that, as the term goes, stress relieving. And okay. at that point, it's a lot more stable. If if the setting is right, uh, I mean this is like uh, white girl iPhone. No, drop like on I said, the wind has shatter, to keep going south. It's it not likely. Tuesday. Tuesday. On the Tuesday, okay. on, the winter, on the winter solstice, on a leap year, it's happened. I've like, I've seen it. I've, I've never had it happen. Uh, that was my next question. Have you ever? Have you personally ever done that or seen it happen? Actually, I've had it happen. I've I've been pre-ground my blades in five or six years. I don't I don't I, I grind everything hard, but I think I ground right. a Warren Cliff, so I had a super fine fine tip, and it was ground to about a thirty thousandth edge, so pretty thin, and it felt. But I didn't really crack. I broke like the first millimeter off the tip. Wow. Yeah, I okay. re-grind the tip, and you're good. But like that tip is it, it's it was tiny. It's a Warren Cliff. Yeah. So, but that, that that was not normal scenarios, and it fell. It probably, it probably fell right at the tip, and it broke a little part. But I've seen photos of people who pre-ground it and have a really sharp plunge line, mm. and it's broke right at the plunge line, right in the middle of the knife. That's that's far out. I, I I think that a lot of I think that a lot of people I talk to, you know, I don't know the the heat treat issue with the with the mechanics opposed to the hardness. I think there's a there's a huge amount of emphasis um, on heat treat and hardness as far as edge edge retention goes, and not necessarily as mechanics go. Um, so I'm Absolutely happy to clear that up. Yeah, folders. Yeah. And also for scratching, like mm. if a fixed blade isn't fully hardened and you're not using it, it's one thing. But let's say if it's not hardened and you're just putting it on the wall, but if it's in the Kydex sheet, the Kydex is more likely to scratch it. Just handling it, it's way more likely to scratch. Um that's also a thing is just scratching wise. If you want to, if it's a knife that you're not using and not carrying, but even a collector who has his knife in his pocket, I mean, at home, he'll still open up the box that has another knife inside of it. And cardboard has a lot of random particles in it. And there could be some odd thing in there. And if it's a softer blade, it's going to more likely to scratch and make the knife look bad. But I, I definitely bought knives, even from production companies. And uh, we talked about a knife in specific that I'm carrying right now that I am pretty, I'm highly doubtful that it's, it's heat treated properly. And I've yeah. tested knives in my Rockwell tester that's advertised as 58, 59, and they're like 50. Now, 50 is fine to be, for it to be mechanically stable, not wear out. But 50 is not good for edge retention at all like 10 points like one point is a big difference like a knife that's 58 to 59 is like night and day almost to a knife that's 60 61 one point is a drastic difference in the hardness yeah i mean we're not gonna get into so 10 is a big too, too much of the steel controversy on this episode because certainly god knows what any of that steel is it's just been lasered with logos. Moving on to Damascus. No, I was talking about that. Uh, <laughs> this is even a production thing that happened. Yeah, no, I, you know, uh, yeah. 
it's heat treating is a very scientific process. Like the oven, we're not using kitchen ovens. We're using like fifteen hundred dollar ovens because when you're when you're talking temperatures, like you got to be accurate within about twenty degrees to, to get the numbers you want based on the manufacturer specs. It's very. It's, no, it's when not you just when you did it at the shop, looks that, right. was, that was the first time I'd seen it in person, and and I watched your oven sort of fluctuate uh, plus and minus like ten degrees for a few minutes before you were comfortable putting something in there. You were like, oh, you got to let it settle out. And I was like, well, it yeah, hit the it, spec. It, like, what's the problem? And you're like, no, you got to let it sort of like fuck around for a couple minutes. And then once it, it holds that number, then it's safe. At that high of a temperature, like anything, even like say, uh, there's a breeze in my shop. There's no window. Right. Let's say there's a window right by the heat tree and the breeze happened, it's going to change the temperature. Yeah. It's just such a high temperature and the ambient temperature around it is 19, 1900 degrees less so everything wants to pull it away. So whenever you need a temperature, like you, I need a 1950, I want it to hit that temperature and settle for 10 minutes to make yeah. sure that the steel inside is the same temperature, not pulling away from whatever the thermostat says to make sure the, the ceramic rock encasing the oven is the same temperature so that nothing is pulling that temperature away. So if it's out there for five or 10 minutes, I know everything is at that temperature and not mm. just the thermostat. And I'm sure CNMI is a lot more complex. Yeah. Uh, yeah, talk, same thing. Talk to us about Damascus. Let me let me let me probe you about Damascus a little bit. Like uh, the understanding of uh, pattern welded steel in a modern sense is certainly, you know, it's a bunch of steel smashed together with a power hammer, and when you dump it in acid or something, it turns different colors. Collectors love it. People love it. I love it. Uh, why does it do it? How does it do it? And what does it take to make that happen? Okay, so Damascus is essentially two to three. Uh, let's go with two. Once it gets more past two, it gets a little different. There's two steels of two different makeups that are fortunate to one steel. Essentially, if you were a kid, you ever play with Play-Doh, and you start mixing your colors, and before they fully mix, you start seeing the colors swirl together. And that's the two different colors kind of being intertwined together. It's pretty much what you're doing with the steel. You stack up anywhere from three to 50 to 100 layers whatever it is alternating layers uh and then you weld them together put them in the oven to similar temperatures as heat treating I'm not going to give specific temperatures here because these are all trade secrets for yeah. guys their own and then you do something called forge welding same as welding except when steel is at a certain temperature or titanium or carbon these are all different temperatures for different things once if you press them together at that temperature they actually just weld to each other and that's known as forge welding you have to do that really quick and in one process and at that point all your three to fifty to hundred layers are now one homogenous piece now, once it's one homogenous piece, it just it's a block of steel. You could leave it like that, or then you start forging it thinner and working it out. Depending on what you do in that forging process, it will depend on your pattern. So you there's something called a twist pattern. That's just pretty straightforward. It's an old generic pattern. That's literally you just take that bar that's a block, you pull it out, you stretch it out, and then you twist it, and then you forge it flat again. And that's why it looks like the metal was twisted, because that's exactly what happened to it. Hmm. There's patterns where you roll it, where you twist it, where you hammer it, where you drill it, where you stamp it. Depending on how you manipulate it will depend on the pattern. Now, at all times when you grind a knife, it's just going to look silver. But the, the reason you have to use two different steels is once you put it in that acid, 
it's going to etch one steel and and not the other. So one of the steels are going to say silver and one's going to say black. Once you etch it, it'll show your pattern based on how you manipulated it. Now, some st- now we talked about this a little earlier, ferric yeah. and muriotic. It Different acids affect uh, steels differently. Depending on the steel, like you thought everything is just ferric. Um, it's not. Because, for example, say damask steel, they're both knife-making steels that could both be etched with ferric. So you hit damask steel with ferric, it's going to be pretty much black and very minimal pattern. So they kind of wash out into each other. So for fer- for damask steel, you have to use muriatic acid. Now, muriatic acid affects steel differently because steels are more synthetic and non-more synthetic. Might be off a little bit with the word, but it's more synthetic or more synthetic, something like that. Mm, okay. Depending if it's, I don't remember which one's which, but if it's more synthetic or non-more synthetic, the muriatic affects one and not the other. So one of them is going to stay silver, while the, the other one turns black. Ferric, the whole more synthetic or not more synthetic thing does not matter. It turns any steel dark. Not titanium, but steel it will turn any steel black. Muriotic will only affect, I think, non-more synthetic or the other one. But it only affects one of them. Um, so you, like you see, for example, steel like Chad Nichols or Vegas Forge, their Damascus isn't both performance steel. So it's not like damaged steel where they're both knife-making steels that both harden. One of them is AABL and the other one is a 300 series, which is not on knife steel, so it doesn't actually harden. And I think, I could be wrong, I don't remember, I think it's the carbon that turns black because of the carbon content it turns black or something. One of the aspects in the knife steel which help it harden, which make it a knife steel, is what makes the steel turn black. Uh, 300 series st- 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 300 series stainless is more of a basic steel that doesn't have all the same chemical composition of knife steels and it doesn't harden and for whatever reason that we just talked about ferric chloride doesn't affect it so when you're using one of those damascuses you could use ferric chloride because ferric would only turn the knife steel black and not the other not the 300 series it'll stay silver Mm. Uh, now muriotic I've never really heard of guys using muriotic on it but I'd assume depending on what the the non 300 stainless is if you use muriotic It'll do nothing, and if it, if I, like I, I don't, I think ABL doesn't get affected by muriotic. I could be wrong here, but like depending on what the actual knife steel is in that Damascus, muriotic might do nothing, or it might okay. do something cool. But usually, if it's that form of Damascus, use ferric. Muriotic is only really used on damascus steel and Damascus, like production-wise, or people like Rob Carter, Rad Knives. I've dabbled my hand in it a little bit. So hopefully soon I'll be setting up a forge setup doing it more. Guys that make it there themselves uh, in the fuller community at least usually make performance. So it's both knife steels and it's usually both it's mariotic. Like we talked about the other day, you guys saw I better post photos on it, probably up by the time this podcast is up. I was actually uh, messing around with using a power hammer and making some performance San Mai. So essentially oh, yeah. All right. it, it's not being used as San Mai where the reason they use San Mai was the center will be carbon. And the outsides would be stainless so that it doesn't rust. I'm using knife steel as the core and knife steel as the jacket. And it's mainly not for performance. It's mainly just a cool factor because it's not really stuff you could normally buy. And for aesthetic reasons, I'm using one that's more synthetic, one that's not. I'm not going to share the recipe. Uh, but one, the outside, uh, I, I made some where the outside will be silver and the core will be black and vice versa. I think that's pretty cool. So I'll mess around a little bit of that stuff. Um, Kindly enough, New Jersey Steel Baron let me use their power hammer. Yeah, when are we going to see any of that? When are we going to see some NK1s built with that stuff? I literally forged it yesterday. I still got to surface grind it. I got to. And also, by Wednesday, then. By Wednesday. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. more like variety at the latest. <laughs> if I didn't have to anneal it, because whenever you're forging steel and you're done forging it, it's hard. Like harder. From what I understand, it actually gets harder than as quenched because you're, it, mm. it hardens in that process. Plus, you're work hardening it. So, like for example, a file won't touch it. A bandsaw won't touch it. You can't drill it. You can only grind it. So what you have to do is you have to anneal it, which is like a 10-hour process to get it soft again. And then you can do whatever you want with it. Um, not get too much into annealing. There's the same thing, recipes and formulas for all this stuff. Um, well, part, of, part of that is definitely, you know, you see on Instagram or you see on the forums or, you know, wherever. Like, oh, such and such maker finishes Damascus one way and such and such uh, finisher, you know, finishes a different way. And a, a lot of it comes down to people maybe not getting how complicated it is to finish Damascus, not only because of what the Damascus is, what it's made out of, what the heat treat is, et cetera, et cetera. But like it is not easy to necessarily finish this stuff because you're essentially finishing two different steels at once. If you want it to look good, you take it to a nice hand rub, and that's each their own. You see some guys that mask is really well, uh, and some guys where it's kind of cloudy and washed out because they just leave it as if it's a normal steel, and they leave it at belt ground, and there's guys that mirror polish it. There's guys that hand rub it to high grit. To each their own, I can't comment too much on that. Like, I'm not a biggest fan of the mask on my knives, mainly because so I don't use it too much. I haven't mainly seen a lot of your knives with it. I must have made five, and... My seven oh, wow. years of making okay. and four years of full time, mainly because, like I said, ninety percent of knives I've made have been tantos. You yeah, make a tanto yeah. compound ground knife with a, with Damascus, it literally washes out every line. It just looks like a tanto shaped knife, and you don't see the grinds. In person, you barely see the grinds, and then in photos, they're invisible. Which so, brings up which brings so, up a great uh, point that is true floor. in most of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah People well, use well, Damascus an, perhaps too often, and it actually just hides your awesome grinds. That's like if it's a knife that's compound ground or some interesting grinds, Damascus just it, it, oh it's Damascus it's just, it's one of those like what guys say like I got this you don't or it's a status thing or it's this knife costs more but in reality you're just doing worse you're taking away the beautiful grinds the knife the knife maker put into them now my Warren like out of the five blades I made most of the knives were the Warren Cliff like so I don't really offer in my orders tanto blades at Damascus I'll use Damascus and stuff like that but a blade I'm not gonna cover up the hard work I put into in my favorite thing about my knives or my tantal grinds with Damascus. I'll still do it. Uh, I haven't used much damage steel. I will be trying some damage steel on tantos. If you're using something like Chad's or, or Vegas Forge, there's a lot of black that tends to hide it. Even damage steel, some of their patterns has a lot of contrast where a lot of silver to black. That might make it better. Uh, the stuff Robert Forges looks great on tantos because it's, it's low layer. So there's a lot of, instead of it being tiny sections of like a millimeter of silver, a millimeter black, there'll be entire like quarter inch areas of silver than a quarter inch area of black. So there's less layers. So there's less going on. So you get to see the grinds more. So I start forging my own materials, which I have some billets here where I forge my own performance Damascus and titanium Damascus. I just have to clean it up. Uh, I'll probably use, I'll probably reserve that mainly to the Tantos because production Damascus that's out there none of it that I found so far um, looks good on the tan so it just washes out the grinds hmm. now uh, do you do any like testing on your knives prior to uh, to um, sending them to users any tests at all like uh, like maybe rope cutting or something do a lot uh, of water bottle cutting I'd love to say that I do but I, I, I don't 
Uh, I, I maybe did. I, no, oh yeah, not maybe. When, when I first started, yeah, I did testing. When I didn't know what the hell I was doing, when I didn't know if my hardening was right, yeah, I did testing. I Rockwell tested everything. I uh, when I tried a new steel, I tested it out. I've been, I've tried enough steels where I kind of generally just use the same three ABL nitro V and CTSX HP, and I know what they're capable capable of. Uh, but back in the day when I was testing out all sorts of materials, testing out heat treat recipes, testing out locks, testing out geometries and locking system, I did. But there's no reason to test every knife. Hmm. Every time I get a new batch of steel, I might test the first one, and my testing would just be cut. It's a two by four a little bit. I've seen in the past where there's a bad, bad batch of steel. I usually buy big sheets of steel, cut it up into the bar stack I need, and I have it for a while. And I know, and that that entire sheet is good. But let's say, for example, I buy my steel from New Jersey Steel Baron. They buy, they have to get a batch rolled. And that batch mm-hmm. could be 5,000 pounds. Uh, I could be off by 1,000 pounds here. But say it's a giant batch that lasts them six months to a year. Next time they order steel, it's going to be rolled differently. And it's probably going to be on a microscopic level or on the recipe. They get a chart. They know how different it is. Let's say it has three, 3% carbon. Maybe now the, this next batch has 3.1. It slightly changes. But there has been – there it, it, it has happened where an entire batch was bad. Um, and what happened was they ended up having they ended up getting a new batch rolled, but it happens. So usually, if it's, I know it's a new batch of steel, I'll test the first blade somewhat, just to know if it hardens. Like I remember they had this issue once, and the blade the steel didn't harden at all. And you'd think everything's fine, but it didn't harden. So I'll just test out the first one of that batch. But besides that, I don't test every knife except the lock. I do spine whack every single knife and do some basic lock testing. But steel wise, I don't really. So I'm going to obviously ask you, when you say rolled, are you talking about cold rolling the steel or are you talking about something else? And if so, I'm what is I'm, that? It, cold rolling, hot rolling, those are different. Like some steels are cold rolled, some steels are hot rolled. It depends on the manufacturer. I'm talking about when the steel okay. is smelted. So you, you order a batch of steel. Uh, I need 20,000 pounds of steel. From what I understand, because I, I worked alongside New Jersey Steel Baron for about two years, so I got to see a lot of their side of the business in the back end, which was pretty cool. Learned a lot of metallurgy from them. Uh, from what I understand, they say we need 20,000 pounds of steel. The, the company's like, okay, we don't have any of that in stock. We're rolling more in four months. Uh, we're more rolling more in four months. So theoretically, Pete, the guys at New Jersey Steel Baron should be ordering it way before they actually need it because hmm. it's they can't always get it because I it like. The, the, from what I said, like the, the manufacturers set scheduled months for certain steels, and then from videos I've seen, it's a giant vat that they pour the different components of that steel into based on their recipe. And I, I usually, I think it's powdered versions of the of the alloy. It gets boiled, gets essentially boiled and melted down in the crucible, and then they pour it out and roll it, or however some things are poured out. So there's different steels like CPM stuff. It's powder. I could be poor. I don't know. But there's rolled, which could be rolled in the hot state. It could be rolled in the cold state. Uh, okay. There's something called PSF, which is actually spray for, roll instead of rolled or cast. It, it's sprayed on almost. It's sprayed layer by layer, almost as if it's 3D printed into whatever size. And I think that's a newer process. That's far out. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. What? Uh, I got. I got one last question about about steel. Uh, I know you said you don't, and I and I know that seeing your knives, you don't. But as far as Damascus goes, you don't use a whole lot of it. But looking at the span of Damascus, from the craze of uh, carbon pattern Damascus 
to your modern sand mize and your core and your damacore. Is there any particular Damascus through the last, whatever, five or ten years by any maker that, you know, if you were going to make a knife for yourself, um, that you would you would do over another? A- anybody. Like, I, particularly, like, Mike Norris, like, Hornet's Nest has always been a favorite of mine. You know, do you have a specific pattern that you uh, prefer over another? Um, honestly, my favorite stuff is just the paint to work with because you have to do a lot of prep work. Uh, and maybe I haven't done that on my Tantos. I want to make my own personal life with it. Uh, I just like all the Chad Nichols sand my stuff where it's the masks on the outside and then specifically the CTS XHP stuff that you, it, if I think the CTS stays silver on the core or like the armor core or stellite core where the core stays silver and the outside layers are Damascus. But uh, for anyone who's ever worked with it, it usually comes super thick and the core is off center and it's done like that purposely. So that way there's distortion in the pattern. And then the maker has to do a lot of work to surface grind it to get it center before he even starts making the knife. So I've actually never worked with it except on a fixed blade and with that one it was kind of center and i just made it ages ago but uh i want plan making my personal life with it it's readily available uh besides that and the reason that one as well because the core will be hardened and unlike some of the non-performance damascus it's not the best user because there is the not hardenable steel in there Mm. like the steel they both harden it's great it's good for users some other guys they don't use both it's more of an aesthetic damascus and not the best user damascus um there is some mike norris stuff that i like too but then again like i said i'm not the biggest fan of damascus because it covers up the pattern so it'd either be some low layer stuff like rob makes and some other guys make because low layer stuff chad makes it once in a while um but i'd probably say some of the chad nichols um samai stuff i really like the samai because you got the different layers of contrast and because of the silver layer i'm pretty sure it's still going to show the majority of the grind and with my with my tantal grinds so i have the main bevel the tip and the swedge you're gonna get this nice silver wrapping around the entire edge tip and swedge so it should look pretty badass Right on. I appreciate that too, and yeah. it, and that that holds fast to your to your original, you know, function over form, you know, because the center of that is absolutely a steel that will cut shit, and it it doesn't. So not, not well, only does it look good, but it is, a, was it is for me, you know, it was performance. And like I was making it because I had the mask, so I didn't even think about. it. I was like, oh wait, and when I finished the knife, I was gonna carry it. I was like, oh, but I don't even see this grind. And I ended up doing tumble Damascus. So I threw in the tumbler slightly and they showed the grind and it looked great. I'm like, you could see the grind again. And when you use it, it'll hide the scratches a little bit. And I was like, wait, it's still, I use these knives hard. Like I cut drywall, I cut stuff again. Like I'll cut, if it boxes staples, I'll hit a staple. My really, my knife's like, here, I just beat them up. I'll cut against the concrete floor. If I'm cutting something on the floor. I don't really care. And I was like, wait, this is not a good user. I have to make something in San Mai or Damascus steel. But we talked about this today, actually, how it's like, I feel like most makers have the knives that are like, even the knife that I carry, it's a knife that I fucked up. But most knife makers carry a knife that's fucked up or just whatever's lying yeah. around the shop. Yeah. I, I feel like a knife maker should actually carry a full dress knife to be in reality because oh yeah absolutely no it displays your work you know casuals love it it's yeah you gotta have something to show it's not even for a knife making community but like regular like yeah like regular people who don't know what we do it's like wait you're a knife maker what does that entail oh i make high-end knives that go from anywhere from six to multiple thousand dollars uh well six hundred to multiple thousand dollars and they're like what wait what what do you do again and it's you show them photos and they're like they kind of get it you show them the knife in your pocket it's just kind of usually it's just a tumbled out 
messed up knife. Uh, I feel like I, sh- I should start carrying like a nice sand my blade to mask his handles or something, just full dress. So when you show him that, it's not like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. But it's like, wow. Oh, yeah, it's super bling. It's like, look at this, man. Like, I made this. It's high end. You appreciate it. And I also kind of beat the hell out of it. Yeah, so hopefully when I get some time, some maybe before Blade Show, or maybe I will fuck up a, a full dress knife so it's slightly fucked up so I can still carry it. Uh, it'll go in my pocket, but I want to make myself an MK1 Micro being in New York. Can't really carry large knives, but so I want the two and a half inch version of the MK1. Uh, a nice Samurai blade and a full Zerka tie, or probably uh, Zirconium scales with Mother of Pearl inlays or something like that. Just go there full, we go. Full gambit, yeah. Yeah. Full dress. You, you heard it here. If you want, if you want Nick to make you something super special, go buy him some uh, some of that Chad Nichols Sand Mai, and he will probably make it happen. Get him some materials. That's right. Or just, yeah. just uh, bribe me with cigar cigars. That, uh, either. <laughs> I think Cuban was always good, but I should Derek answer. Recently, I've been really on the uh, Avos. Nicaraguans? Yeah, I've been talking a lot of those. They're not rolled. They're kind of like a square press cut. Uh, what else did I had? It's pretty good. Those are the, like actual square ones? Yeah, they kind of look like the Javas by Drew Estate, but they're they're Avo Arturos. Uh, Avo and something. I think Avo Arturos. Uh, oh. No. No, it's Avo, so Avo, and then starts with a V. Is that, I, I don't remember. But it's a really good line of cigars. Um I've been smoking their Nicaraguans a lot lately, and I'm waiting on a box of Cohiba. Yeah, Cohiba Cyglo. Yeah, Cohiba Cyglo twos. All right. Well, they could buy Cubans in the U.S. I found them online. Yeah, it was a good good price on the box of twenties. They're a nice shorter stick. Yeah, becoming more prevalent. That's that's for sure. Hmm. All right. Well, cigars and San Mai. That'll be the name of uh, Nick's biography, without a doubt. Absolutely. So uh, uh, I think we should. All, there's all sorts of nonsense going on in the background here. Uh, <laughs> we're we're going about two hours now, I think. Uh, Nick, what do you want to uh, end with? You want to round out the uh, history and future of NCC knives and give us a closer? Uh, a lot of new stuffs coming out. I've been delayed on the new folders with MK1, and now that my dad's going to be on full-time. Um, I'm working on the Balasong, so there's not locks there. The fixed blades. Oh, really, I got the, the slip joints that I really want to make. I got the prototypes. A recent photo you just threw in the WhatsApp. looks really nice. Um, and the yeah, that's got to be the best one so far, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's it. That's the winner. Uh, I, I nailed um, uh-huh. And and I like to end the day, the, the the podcast on one oh, of my yeah. favorite quotes by Chad Nichols. Nice city sprinkles and bladeology out. Were you waiting for me to stop recording? Is that what you were waiting for? No, I just wanted a nice pause so that way you could find the ending easily. Okay, cut it. Hopefully, it, 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 when I said Teddy Sprinkles, it didn't kind of win. Oh, my God.